0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Luis Ribeiro about the mathematics and astronomy underlying the different forms of house division, as well as the use of the astrolabe as a mechanical uh, device for doing astrology during the medieval period. So hey, Luis, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. We've been talking about doing this episode for a couple of years now and we we almost did it last year and then the the pandemic broke out and i got sick um so i'm i'm really happy that we we finally got it together and i think this is going to be a really interesting discussion that a lot of people have been looking forward to so thanks for joining me today yeah well it's a pleasure yeah so for those that um don't know so or i should first say the date today's tuesday july 27th 2021 starting it 508 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this should be the 313th episode of the show. So, Luis is the author of one of my favorite and basically my one of my highest recommended intro to astrology books, which is titled On the Heavenly Spheres: A Treatise on Traditional Astrology. So, he teaches and practices astrology through his website, academyofastrology.eu, and also has a YouTube channel where he interviews different Academics who work on the history and transmission of astrology. And you can find that. It's called the Astra Project. And I'll put a link to it um, in the description just below this video. If you want to check out that channel, I'd highly recommend re- um, subscribing to it. So we're going to talk about uh, kind of a complicated topic today, which is the celestial man- mechanics and um, mathematics underlying house division. And house division, of course, which system of house division to use is one of the biggest issues in astrology that astrologers have wrestled with for a long time now in terms of practically speaking, how to divide the chart and different arguments for doing that. But instead of focusing on that debate, which I've I've done different episodes on before, we're going to focus on this issue from a different perspective, which is more just explaining what is the mathematical rationale or the astronomical rationale underlying the different systems of house division so that each astrologer can understand these systems better and make a more informed choice about which one to go with. Um, how long have you been working on this issue of understanding the the astronomy or the mathematics underlying house division?
1: Yeah. Oh, well, Chris, uh, for a long time now. Uh, uh, although I'm not... Um, A mathematical inclined person, Uh, but I I always search to to understand how things work. You know, what is the astronomical structure um, behind the the different house systems and the the different calculations we do. Mm -hmm. So, although I started many many years ago, like everyone else, using the Placidus and the the tables of houses that were most common at the time were Placidus uh, house system. Uh, I always seek to understand exactly how are constructed and how are calculated um, the the different systems. And when I did my research on which system to choose, or and I tried to calculate them by hand, you know, to understand the, the trigonometry and the mathematics, and try to mm-hmm. If I didn't have a table, how would I make the calculation? And that was um, was there that I learned a lot. And this was late nineties, early two thousands that I did this research, you know, more thoroughly.
0: Mm. And that was around the time that you got into traditional astrology, I think, as well, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. And so think, part think... of 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 understanding this was also what m- made me choose which system to use. Uh, as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important. And that's kind of tied in with that movement that many astrologers have had to go back and look at the sources, which is to, you know, usually people when you first learn astrology kind of just default to whatever system or approach you first used. But um, for some of us that then went back and started studying older sources, it has to do with really understanding the reason why we use different techniques and what is the rationale for why you might use one approach rather than another and i can't think of any area where maybe this is more necessary or more useful than looking at house division and really understanding um what the basis is for some of these systems especially since most people today don't um calculate charts by hand anymore so the yeah. mathematics behind some of behind some of this is a little bit obscure i think for most people
1: yeah i think so and uh, what I've noticed progressively in, in, in students, which is unfortunately, is a lack of knowledge of astronomy and celestial mechanics. Of course, back in the old days, uh, almost every astrologer was also an astronomer and mathematician. Um, of course, you don't need to be an astronomer or a mathematician to to be an astrologer today because you have the tools for it but we we all, as students of astrology, should at some point really look into these things, you know uh try to calculate all this by hand, even just to have the experience and the understanding, even if you keep it in your notes and never see it again, it has been years since I've calculated the chart by hand, except when I'm teaching students how to do it but but then it's always the same uh charts uh but still, you sh- we should understand how 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 everything is calculated, and um, also to have um, what Elena and I used to call a culture, astrological culture. You know, not only historical but also mathematics. You need to understand the mathematics, and so that you can understand the debates. Um, you cannot understand the historical and eternal debate of the house systems, which one's better, which one's not, if you don't understand. At least a bit of the mathematics behind them, uh, so I think that's vital.
0: And I hope that's something that's something we're going to try to explain today: is some of those fundamental astronomical basics and make them um, clear and explainable, uh, especially in a visual context for students of astrology. And that's an interesting point that you brought up because you know it's only in the past few decades suddenly that people can practice astrology or learn astrology without learning how to calculate charts by hand, which is kind of an interesting shift in terms of it you know opening up the field and making it more more diverse and more approachable. but on the other hand we've we've lost a little bit in terms of that mathematical knowledge at the same time. Um, and and like you said there's so many famous astrologers and uh, astronomers in history who are also astrologers like Claudius Ptolemy or Johannes Kepler or, who, who are some others Reggio Montanas maybe oh
1: it, it 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 doesn't end you know um uh, Magini, Placidos, most of the people we are going to to talk about uh today um I think almost everyone that worked with astronomy and mathematics would know until late seventeenth century would know a little bit about astrology, even if they didn't practice it. In interpreting charts, they would know a little bit about it, how it worked, and you can see that by the books. You know, it's there; the information is there for them to look at. So, almost all mathematicians and astronomers uh, before the 18th century would know a little bit about um, astrology, and most of th- most of them would have practiced astrology at one point or another. Uh, I would think, even if only a part of their learning process. So the number is quite high, I believe.
0: Yeah. And that um, brought up, there's a debate that some of the astrological organizations have been having lately, which is whether for their certification process, whether knowing how to calculate a chart by hand should be required in order to be given um, sort of basic certification in astrology. And some of the organizations in the US right now are trying to decide whether to keep that requirement or whether to get rid of it and whether it's no longer like appropriate to require that, which is kind of an interesting
1: debate to have. It is, it is. I would be of the opinion that you should. It should be part, you know. And people have to to understand. I know that mathematics, people run away by mathematics. Like we say in Portuguese, like the devil from the cross, you know, it's something. Oh my God, mathematics and people freeze. But we're talking about very simple mathematics. Uh, you just have to know how to use the tables, and you can have a calculator to do the, the whole mathematics of it. And it's you know adding, subtracting, multiplying. So we're not talking about spherical trigonometry. I think that will be too much uh, uh, to ask of people. Um, It wouldn't hurt them, but (laughs) it's a bit too much. So I think, think, yes, uh, every student should pass through that uh, process of calculating a chart and understanding the celestial mechanics as we're going to talk about them today. Um, Even if just to have an idea of how it works, you know, and even if you... Forget about it at some point because you're using the computer. At least you have an experience of the past uh, or some notes where you can go to and just check and see uh, how it worked. You know how it, how, how it functioned. Yeah,
0: yeah there. Uh, I learned how to do the chart calculations at. Year two of Kepler College, when they still had their their academic degree program, and I've since forgotten it. But I've been thinking lately about whether I could do, whether I could fit like in a two hour podcast like this, like an instructional video about how to calculate charts by hand, or if that would be something that would be you'd need to do like a whole series on it or something like that.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, I think you could. I must say it would be a very boring podcast. <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> not the most term. exciting topic. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's not the most exciting topic and it's very um, do this, do that, and there's a sequence of instructions. But yes, it might be useful uh, for those who, who are not aware of it, yeah, certainly. All right. Well, certainly, if any yeah.
0: any listeners or people watching this episode want me to do that as a topic in the future, let me know in the comments below. Um, but why don't we why don't we jump into our actual main topic today, which is um, house division, and where should we mm-hmm. start when it comes to this topic?
1: Well, we should start. Uh, well, you have said uh, already uh, a lot of things, so this is an ongoing discussion through in history. Um, right. Um, although I'm not certain if we had if the if in the past they had as many house systems as we have today. Um, I think today we have a proliferation. I'm, I'm not sure how the count is going at this point, but the last time right. it was around 30.
0: Yeah, there's probably at least more. like 30 different house systems. There's probably yeah. at least a dozen or half a dozen that are more commonly used, mm-hmm. let's say. But mm-hmm. then there's also yeah. a bunch of like obscure systems as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there's there's quite a few different forms of house division, and we're, when we're talking about forms of house division, we're talking about for example, whole houses or uh, porphyry houses or Placidus or um, Regiomontanus, Alcabitius, Mm -hmm. uh, Coke houses. And those are basically some of the main ones, I think, at this point in time.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I did a a survey recently um, where I tried to ask people, um, and I was particularly interested in practitioners of tradition. So people who who at least had uh, knowledge of tradition and the system that was now uh, appearing um, in greater number was definitely the whole whole science system, followed by Placidus and then Regiomontanus and Alcabitius. That's usually I think that the distribution of percentages goes uh, that way and then other systems. Will pop up but not so commonly. Equal houses appears a little bit, but not as much as any of the others.
0: yeah. and and there's different eras when different house systems tend to predominate or tend to be more common. and the you know preferences for different house systems can change kind of like a like a fad almost in different time periods for different reasons related to. Sometimes like astronomical reasons, sometimes mathematical reasons, sometimes purely like cultural or historical reasons, like different historical arguments. There's a lot of different nuances involved in those those shifts. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and even today we see we can see how certain trends, you know, either because you have a famous author that uses a certain system or um, a school. A thought that uses a certain system, then suddenly systems that are more obscure uh, appear, or simply systems that were out of use at that period suddenly gain a, a lot more um, preeminence in practice. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it changes a lot, and um, perhaps we should start with making a, a, a an historical overview, a brief historical overview. Uh, yeah, you have
0: a great um, animation that shows sort of the, the timeline of the origin of yeah. some of the most popular systems, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. So let me share the screen with you. So here we have the house divisions to time. So let's build a timeline. And um, I focused here only in uh, pre-modern uh, house systems. So I don't extend the debate. Towards the uh, the nineteenth or the the twentieth century, because then the house systems become too much, uh, so many that it's easy. It's not easy to track them uh, exactly on popularity. And of course, the oldest form um, uh, and um well, I would I was going to use the word primitive, but not in the sense of sophistication, in the sense of earliest. Um, Earliest form of division is going to be the whole sign, uh, where where, and due to its simplicity, and well, it's uh, maybe sim- "simplistic"
0: is a good term for it, or "simple."
1: Simple, yeah, it's simple. So you don't you only need to determine which degree uh, is ascending at the uh, at a given moment, and then you build. We're going to explain this a little bit better. Of course, most people will know about this. So then you can divide, attributing. It's the sequence of each sign um, from the ascending, from the sign where the ascendant is placed, it's going to be the first house, and following uh, the sequence, each sign corresponding to an entire house. Uh-huh.
0: So this is the the whole sign house system, or as James Holden called it, the sign equals house system.
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So yeah. so
0: first century BCE basically is when the first charts with that show up, and that yeah, therefore yeah, is. So- one of the earliest documented systems, and then for those listening to the audio version, the time frame runs from there, and then it starts to fade by like the ninth and tenth yeah. century, when the other quadrant systems really start becoming more dominant, and then by certainly by the Renaissance, by the end of the medieval period, whole sign houses just kind of dies out completely in the Western traditions. That we don't see it mentioned in authors like William Lilly or. Especially even modern authors in the early to mid twentieth century, until it was rediscovered mm-hmm. in the West
1: in the late twentieth century. Yeah, exactly. Here, this timeline is of course focused on Western astrology, so European-based astrology. Uh, if we, we included uh, the Indian practice, this system would would continue throughout time uh, to current uh, to our current time. So. Um, So, this is um, an approximation. Of course, Uh, uh, the diagram is approximate. It's not intending to be the ultimate word or extremely accurate historically, just to give an idea. And like you said, Chris, uh, uh, the whole sign system seems to disappear. Around the ninth century, it starts to deem uh, its use. uh, We see it less and less. Uh, and is being replaced by other systems which suddenly have appeared or at least start to appear uh, in practice.
0: Right. And that's something I want to talk about later is, is why that shift happened and, and why it was somewhat dramatic. And that'll tie into our later topic of talking about the rise of the use of the astrolabe and how that could be used to calculate um, not just the Ascendant and Midheaven, but also the other house cusps for quadrant houses very easily and whether that one of my like working theories is that that could have played a role in why that shift started to happen somewhat suddenly by the ninth and 10th centuries.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, certainly um, the ability to calculate uh, and measure with precision uh, astronomical movement played a huge part o- o- on this. And here there is a mutual um, back so there's a mutual relation and a back and forth between the creation of um instruments and uh the um and the the development of certain mathematical systems astronomical or astrological so that appears to be uh something that goes out throughout time uh, so as you have uh, you you have more needs for uh, accuracy and in interpretation, you're going to have more uh, more accurate um, uh, instruments being built to, uh, to account that. And as you are able to measure more, then the mathematics of uh, astrology becomes more complex. So you have that kind of play between these two uh, facets. Right.
0: And we have some of that in the like the earlier tradition, for example, with the development of the ephemeris in like the fifth century BCE in Mesopotamia. and then it's around or not long after that time that we see the first birth charts from like 410 BCE forward because mm-hmm. you kind of need, uh, to some extent, um, if you if somebody was born 30 years ago, you need to be able to look up where the planets were 30 years in the past. Um, yeah. If you weren't there to witness the planets at that exact moment like visually, so mm-hmm. sometimes like astronomical innovations can spur on developments in, astro- in astrology or sometimes astrological um, you know the desire to be able to do certain things with astrology can spur exactly. on certain math- certain astronomical innovations. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. There's there's a uh, it's all the same thing. So it's it's a, the same body of knowledge, uh, developing um, developing both technically and um, in ways of thinking and conceptually. So I think the two go hand in hand throughout history.
0: Okay. Um, so let's okay. go back. So Holstein's the first. What's our next
1: system of house division? Okay. The next system is going to be um, the and equal you- houses. And let me uh sorry, I accidentally pulled
0: the screen back. So let's share your screen again.
1: Okay, so the equal houses will be the next step, if we can call it like this. Okay. Um there are there isn't uh an origin of the equal houses um clear, uh, as we don't have an origin for the for the whole sign, you know, it's just there. Um, it is apparently described by Ptolemy uh, uh, in, the, in the Tetra uh, There is a description which many authors interpret as being equal houses. Uh, of course, throughout history, that's going to be a debate what exactly did Ptolemy meant by that division. Um, but definitely, he described something uh, which appears to be equal houses. Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, Sorry, you were saying
0: Uh, Vadius Valens also has a chapter where he describes equal houses and how to calculate them, and it seems to be drawing on an earlier text from either the 1st century BCE uh, or maybe slightly later, like 1st century CE attributed to Asclepius. So in in my book on Hellenistic astrology, I proposed that um, there was this early text attributed to Hermes which introduced the whole sign system. And then there was another text attributed to Asclepius that introduced the equal house system. Um, But those ended up being two of the earliest texts on house division from the beginning of the Hellenistic tradition around the 1st century BCE. Uh, And then Firmicus Maternus is the next person after that who's in the 4th century that outlines equal houses also
1: drawing on the Asclepius text. Yeah, exactly. And equal houses seem to pop up throughout history a little bit. It's difficult to track it, um, and uh, more or less in parallel with with the whole sign, it it seems to die out uh, during the, the the medieval period, so around the ninth, tenth century. But in uh, I'm uh, not certainly if, the, if there is any study that really can assess how how used was the system uh, in at least in, in the Middle Ages, where we have more records um, but uh, it, it, that's, this appears to be what we know about it at this point. you know, it seems to fade away as uh, more or less in the same period as the whole sign.
0: I thought it was mentioned by some like Renaissance authors or there's some debate about that where somebody tried to revive
1: it based on Firmicus or something like that. Uh, yeah. And if, if, we, if we go to the books where they discuss the house systems, I think even the whole sign uh, still is there uh, later on because it it, it it survives in a lot of techniques and methodologies so, for example, you are seeing authors sometimes referring to the tenth sign from the ascendant when they are um, um, studying uh, matters related to vocation and not only to the to the MC degree. So that seems to linger on, and and certain techniques uh, which has to do have to do with planetary. Uh, houses so houses extracted from planets seems to use a whole sign system I'm not sure if they're going to use or uh, eventually an equal house system so it's always there and even in more complex I was saying even more complex debates in the Renaissance you see you see them referring to either to the whole sign or to the equal house system as being that of the ancients so, that that idea it lingers on much more than we realize um, throughout the, uh, until the 17th century.
0: Yeah. Um, I just remember there's this tweet um, from a friend of mine named Rob Bailey uh, last year in July where he said that astrologers Luca Garrico and Jerome Cardano in the 16th century were bitter rivals in the early days of the printing press. And Garico mocked Cardano for using the equal house system instead of a quadrant system, saying that he "quote unquote" calculated houses like a bumpkin, which is like a I don't know, like a farmer or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's funny some of those debates, but just lingering echoes of the equal house system where it sort of survived a little bit from as a result of some of those authors like Firmicus being transmitted in Latin. But that it would have been looked at as like a very simplistic form of degree-based house division, where you start from the degree of the ascendant and
1: then measure thirty-degree increments from there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was also in certain, in a certain way, uh, and in certain moments, uh, a way to cheaply calculate charts in printed in printed material. So. When you have, I think the case of Cardano is that he has a huge collection of charts, and the work involved in creating plates for all those charts, for such a great number of chart in a printed book would be terribly expensive and a lot of work. So he simplifies it, you know, he gives the data, he gives the ascendant. If anyone wants to to calculate a more complex house system, let them have <laughs> let them do the work and he just presents a, a, a simple structure. So there's also um, in certain cases, I'm not saying every in every case, but that seems to be also an economic reason to, to, to save a few work, uh, work in, in printing in the printing press because printing a chart was very complicated. Um, you would need to have either an engraving, like for example, you find later in lilies, lilies, those are engravings, Or you would need to have certain types. Uh, You know, you have to construct a chart from the types you had with dashes and uh, lines and numbers, which is a bit of work.
0: Right, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Here, let me just share that tweet really quickly. There's, it was Rob Bailey who is at Old School Astro on Twitter, just to give him the uh, proper credit credit for that. In a little thread he did on on House Division at one point. Uh, and something I meant to mention actually is there was a in the mid in the mid twentieth uh, century there was a revival of equal houses in the UK, and I know that um, Margaret Hone through the um, what was the school? There's there's a primary like a school in uh, the UK that became one of the main schools for astrology, yes, and um, they used her textbook, which advocated the use of equal houses.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it was very, very common uh, Yeah, in the mid 20th century. I think it was one of the m- most used systems perhaps after Placidus, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. after
0: um, Placidus and that still persists. There's some astrologers like I did an interview a year ago with Carol Taylor Uh, who taught at the Faculty of Astrological Studies. That's the one. That's it, the
1: Faculty, yeah, exactly. The
0: Faculty of Astrological Studies. So through that school and that lineage, they've continued to pass that on in terms of using equal houses as their primary approach. So sometimes you'll see interesting um, things like that in terms of the history of house division and certain systems popping back up or coming back into vogue and going out of vogue and coming back at different points.
1: Yeah, certainly, and I think it's, for example, with these systems which are simple. Uh, I'm not sure what was the their idea, uh, but probably because it was easy to calculate. I'm not sure how what was the um, why they chose that that uh, such a simple system. But um, I mean,
0: for me, uh, you know, I still use whole sign houses as the primary system of house division, um, not because it's simple, but because of the conceptual rationale that it has for the houses. So sometimes I think there are practical
1: and conceptual
0: reasons for it even if you're aware of potentially more complex systems.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. It would be interesting to know um, just out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So that's equal
0: houses. What, What comes after that?
1: Equal houses. So after that, we have porphyry what we call today the porphyry houses although it is described much earlier and i think the earliest one that at least i'm aware of it's valens uh, who describes um the porphyry system which divides the arc so it's i think this is the first one the first quadrant system that appears the earliest one perhaps um in which you have an mc the 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 mc degree and the ascendant being accounted for uh, for the division of the houses. Yeah,
0: there's earlier references to like Valens for example in that chapter where he introduces this system in the context of the length of life treatment. Um he it, it's attributed to an earlier author named Orion, but it's not clear in the text if Valens cuz Valens introduces an approach but then he there's a modification of it. And it's not clear if it's Valens himself that's modifying it or if it's his source, which is the Orion text, but certainly at least by the 2nd century CE, we see it in Valens. And then you have a, an annotation here about when it was first used because we start to get some discrepancies between when we first have documented usages of certain house systems versus the author whose name later came to be associated with some of them. So Porphyry lived a century or so after Valens in the late 3rd century, and that's who that system ended
1: up um, taking the name from for historical reasons exactly most likely uh, it's either the lore surrounding the house system that uh, attributes it to a certain author or it's it was at certain as a certain point the earliest known reference uh, to the system and uh, I think here they attribute it to porphyry although Valens does uh, describe it earlier on and attributes it to to early authors. And the simplicity of the system itself would suggest that it's probably earlier. So all of these dates can perhaps be pushed uh, to earlier dates, uh, but we, ne- we still need uh, evidence for that. I mean, this is just supposition. Yeah.
0: And there was an introduction to astrology text that was written in Greek that was um, attributed to Porphyry. And Porphyry was like a famous 3rd century Neoplatonic philosopher who was a student of Iamblichus, who was one a very significant philosopher in um, the Roman Empire. But um, that text, that introduction of Porphyry, I think it was still in circulation later during the medieval and early Renaissance period. And there was a printed version of it, whereas Valens' text fell out of circulation um, after the Middle Ages basically. So that's why the system would have been attributed to Porphyry and some later Renaissance authors, for example. And I think you made a point when we were talking the other day that some of these names come from the Renaissance authors who were looking back at what texts they had access to and then trying to name some of these systems based on who they thought the earliest source was or who invented the system.
1: Exactly, exactly. So we have, um, and we, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit later, but um, we have a whole historiography. Of the 16, 17, and later centuries, where these these names are going to be attributed, although at the time they might not have uh, these names originally, as we will see uh, further on.
0: Okay. So what's after? So Porphyry is the first quadrant system that's trisecting the, um, it's dividing into three the the four quadrants between the degrees of the ascendant, the degree of the midheaven or meridian, and then the degree of the descendant and the degree opposite the meridian. So exactly. what's the next system after that?
1: The next one is Alcabitius, what we know today as Alcabitius system. Although again, as you see in the diagram. Um, the earliest known example we have of this is in rhetorios in the 5th century and Alcabitius lived much later in the 10th century. So, um, And um, Alcabitius doesn't really describe this system. He describes something similar, but it could be a number of things. He doesn't give you the mathematics of the system. Um, so uh, this attribution is a bit odd.
0: Okay, so and he Al his, his Arabic name was Al Khabisi, but we sometimes refer to it or the system is referred to by the the like Latinization of his name, which is Al He lived in the 10th century and wrote a very popular introduction to astrology text where it's kind of funny because he he criticized Abu Mashar, who wrote the great introduction to astrology, but it's very long and it's very dense. And I think Al Was a little bit annoyed at And he he sort of makes a remark about um, Abu Mashar being a little bit too wordy. So he wanted to write something that was kind of like in between the greater introduction of Abu Mashar, which is a really long text, but something more substantial than the lesser introduction to astrology of Abu Mashar, which was a very short, almost overly short and concise text. So Al-Khabish has wrote this like middle ground text and that actually ended up being very popular Later in the late medieval and early Renaissance period, where it got assigned as like assigned reading, I think in some universities
1: mm-hmm. for uh, doctors and things like that. Yeah, it's one of the most famous introductions. So the, the there are several introductions that is a So So um, the introductions to astrology and his is uh, by far one of the most popular ones um, until late 16th century. Um, then others start to appear, but his was very important. It was one of the earliest um, ast- astrology books to be printed um, because it's, it was a basic. You know, you had to have it, you had to read it to really uh, understand the basics of the system. Okay.
0: And so he, he outlined some Quadrant House system in his text. And that's part of the reason why this system which became basically the standard Quadrant House approach during the medieval period, why it gets attributed to him. But this is the point where we get into sometimes there being some ambiguity in the sources because the the mathematics of one system can sometimes be similar to or very close to or, or produce the same results as another Quadrant House system. And we do know for sure that at least by the fifth century that we see this system being used by astrologers such as Rhetorius of Egypt who lived in the fifth or sixth century CE.
1: Exactly. And historians of mathematics and astronomy which are the ones that have studied this uh, problem because it's a, the, the calculation of the house system is a very interesting mat- historical problem in terms of mathematics and astronomy because um, especially when you get to the quadrant systems, it requires methods of computation. So they have been studied, not in full detail, but at least in in the perspective of the history of mathematics and astronomy, they have been studied as a case. uh, They are a case study of how astronomical calculation um, develops throughout time, Um, and uh, exactly what they sometimes have a problem with is either we have charts, as you were saying, uh, that it's indefinitely to know exactly which system are they using because if they made an approximation in the calculation, there might not be a sufficient uh, distance uh, from one system to the other. and From Porphyry to Alcabitius, sometimes the distance is one degree of difference between the house cusps. So if they're doing an approximation, you might not be sure which one they're using. Or sometimes uh, when they are describing a house system, they are not um, detailed enough to understand exactly what they're talking. So so sometimes the problem is that what they are defining can be a number of things. So it isn't clear. So there's a lot of problems there as well. Okay, got it.
0: But for the most part, Alkabitius becomes, and I know some academics, academic texts refer to this as, as the standard system because it was so commonly used during the medieval period.
1: Yeah, it's John D. North, which has the horoscopes and history. His book is the seminal work uh, on the the house systems in academia, and he, uh, what he does, he instead of calling them the the names that we call, he uh, attributes alternative uh, names. Uh, more inclined to their mathematical nature. So Alcabitius he calls the standard system because it's always described uh, in the texts. And you, if we look at the medieval chart, uh, the it's most likely, especially after the 8th century, it's most likely a uh, an Alcabitius uh, house system that is being used in the charts. So it's very, very common until um the early uh, 16th century, 17th century still appears. Uh, I've seen examples of the, of the 17th century very early, but then it is by then replaced by, by other systems, namely Regimontanus, of which we'll think, speak about in a while, but um, it's still there. And you can see, for example, figures like Cardano, Saying that although they use Regimontanos as everyone else in their in their time, um, I think it's uh, if I think it's Cardano who says that he likes uh, the cusps uh, that are calculated by what he calls the old system, and what he's uh, stating there there uh, is Alcabitius. Um, so there is this back and forth uh, of experimentations uh, already by that time. Um, but it is the perhaps in, in historical terms, uh, as far as we know, in the Western practice or in the European-centered practice, uh, the most popular uh, of house systems uh, in, in the tradition. Okay. Um.
0: So, and this is actually your preferred quadrant house system, right? Or this is the system that you primarily use in practice?
1: Yes. That this is the one I use, and this is the one that. Um, my experiments with how systems lead me to choose uh, in terms of uh, results, yeah. Okay.
0: And we'll get into the mathematics underlying that system in just a bit here after this little historical overview. I meant to mention also in passing um, that because you mentioned like JD North's book, Horoscopes in History, which is one of the mm-hmm. primary academic texts on house division. I know there's been also some other more recent work on mm-hmm. different systems of house division in um academic texts. Like you mentioned one of the authors who is doing some some work more recently. Uh his name is Julian. Uh
1: there's Casuleras. Uh I failed the first name at this point. Uh he's a an historian of mathematics and he has works on um the divisions and um, so the division the house system divisions and um, also uh, the direction systems, the systems for calculating uh, primary directions in the medieval uh, Islamic world. So he is, I think, his papers uh, that he co- uh, co-author with other authors as well are the latest uh, that I'm, I'm aware of in terms of the classification of the different systems that they find uh, in in the text works. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, and then there's been other work by um there's been other there's another academic text. I'm I'm struggling to think of the author who did a work like a paper on different medieval systems of house division, and he had mm-hmm. also done that brilliant book about Arabic astronomy. Uh Julio
1: yeah, Samso, I think the one that you were thinking was Julio Samso, yeah. uh who, who also did this number of texts on, on house systems. Um compiled a lot of information. Um, And there is another Kennedy. uh, Kennedy, that's um, it, yeah. Yeah, that comes after North. Uh, So North does the seminal work. Uh, Then Kennedy rectifies and adds uh, more information to to what North uh, does. And then Samso and then Casoleras are the ones that are continuing uh, this research. Yeah. yeah.
0: And the um, paper, it's actually a, its an article or a paper by E. S. Kennedy. It's titled The Astrological Houses as Defined by Medieval Islamic Astronomers. Um, it's a very good work. So there is a problem though and there's a division and this gets into the, the murky issue, but in terms of the revival of rediscovering that whole sign houses was a concept which from my perspective, um, I thought until recently that James Holden, certainly in English, James Holden was the first both academic or astrologer that I knew of who really talked very openly about this, that whole sign houses was probably the original form of house division or certainly was the most common form of house division <clears throat> in the, the Greco-Roman period in the Greek texts from like about the 1st century BCE through the 5th or 6th century. And he did that um, first in 1984 in a, a paper on the different forms of house division. And then after that point, we see other scholars like um, Robert Hand starting to publish papers on it, um, some astrological including a monograph, and then eventually an academic paper on it in Culture and Cosmos in 2006 or so, uh, but also other scholars like Robert Schmidt. And then more recently um, myself, And I did an episode I wanted to mention that talks about the early origins of the different forms of house division, which goes into that in a little bit more depth um, in the Hellenistic tradition, but that's in episode 227 of the astrology podcast titled The Origins of the House Division Debate in Ancient Astrology. Um, So I wanted to mention that because one of my issues with J.D. North and some of the other academic scholars is even though they're very comprehensive for The quadrant systems of house division and they're very interested in the mathematics underlying them, I do feel like there was this blind spot where because whole sign houses was lost for the most part by the 20th century in the Western tradition, there wasn't a realization that that was actually used as a legitimate form of house division in the Greco-Roman tradition in the Greek texts. And J.D. North goes so far as to say that he didn't think the Greek astrologers even used houses as much as Some of the later tradition did, but that was actually just obviously quite false. It's just that they weren't using quadrant houses, they were instead using the signs as houses, which if you're not aware of that can sometimes make it look as if they're not using houses at all. But if houses are um, understood sometimes to coincide with the signs, then they were using them just as frequently Mm -hmm. as the later Medieval and Renaissance astrologers, just in a slightly different
1: way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the problem with with North and several other uh, historians of mathematics is apparently that they do not consider the whole house system to be a house division, not in the mathematical perspective. You know, so we could call perhaps. We, well, we're talking about house systems, so s- several systems of of uh, establishing the houses in the chart, but mathematically. Uh, they consider that the whole sign is not really a division. Uh, they're just—it's just, uh, it's just uh, an attribution of signs to uh, to certain topics or to certain houses, m- starting with the determination of the ascendant, and then the determination is done in sequence. So for them, that's not a mathematically uh, complex problem. They see it as a very primary and um, um, simple uh, way of of attributing the houses. So they're not going to consider it in their studies because that's not their focus. They want to understand how um, the calculus uh, develops, you know, the trigonometry, the projection of the different parts of the sphere onto the ecliptic, onto the equator. So none of that is happening in the whole house system. So they're going to ignore it. And uh, of course, if we if we approach the topic from the perspective of the history of astrology, then a whole other discourse and this this is the, the interesting thing because if you approach the topic of the houses which almost no one has ever done at least globally through the the history of astrology then you're talking about practice you know and then you have to understand what is being used in practice here and the most the academic discussions so far have been mostly centered on mathematics and uh, so the whole sign doesn't pop up. Although, as I told you before, and I couldn't find that reference, but I know it's there somewhere, um, the earlier um, scholars of the Greek tradition, you know, Boucher Leclerc and, and, and the scholars of that time, they are aware of how the chart is constructed in the Hellenistic period. So they probably don't focus so much on giving it a name but they are describing horoscopes uh, and charts you know with whole signs houses. They understand that our houses which are constructed from the part of fortune so which are done by counting. and I think that's the word they used counting, you know it's the, the topics are described by counting the signs. Um, so they are aware that that exists. Um, but they're not discussing it as a house system because that's not their focus, I think. And I'm not
0: sure about that just because I know with some more recent academics like in the past five to 10 years, I could see that being true that maybe they're aware of that, but because they're focused on the mathematical systems, that's all they want to really focus on is because that's the thing that's more interesting in terms of the mathematics underlying the quadrant systems. But I, I do think there was this period where academics like JD North didn't realize that whole sign houses was a concept and it and it was a sort of blind spot. And I've been trying to track back what the earliest references are mm. to whole sign houses. And I'm still unsure because I have read through Boucher Leclerc's L'Astrology Grec, which is like the primary academic mm. reference text for the for Greco-Roman astrology yeah. for the past century, it was published in like uh, 1899 or something Nin- like that. Yes, yeah. yeah uh, really, but I'm yeah. I'm not sure. There's some places where he comes very close to almost describing whole sign houses, but I, I legitimately don't know if he recognized that as a form of house division. Because if he did, I think most of the academics subsequent to him would have recognized it as well. But in most texts, they seem to be unaware of it until Holden and and then subsequently Rob Hand and some of those people started
1: talking about it. Yeah, but you you also have ho- um, what's the name the Binogebauer, the, mm. uh, the the Greek Greek horoscopes. I think that's the title, if mm. I'm recalling correctly. Right. They have a lot of examples with whole signs. So so they are and they are describing them the horoscopes. So they they should be aware. They should of be what's happening I'm, there. I'm not
0: sure if they were. That's the problem. That's what's so I,
1: weird. I don't think they're discussing it or calling it a name because these right. are not historians of astrology. So they're, they're focusing on the mathematics and mathematical practices mostly. That's right. why I think so. So they're not concerned with calling it a name. So you might be observing this phenomenon, although sometimes historiography has these huge blind spots that seem like black uh, huge black holes. <laughs> uh, right. And so,
0: yeah. And I, I did want to yeah. say um, that I, I found a book last year. So I thought Holden was one of the first people, both astrologers and academics, because I, I found other books on, like, in English on house division from the 1970s and early 1980s. And they, they just don't mention the whole site houses because they're not aware of it as a concept in the astrological tradition in, like, the mid to late 20th century. Mm-hmm. And Holden was one of the first that explicitly named it and said this is an approach, so I thought he was one of the first. But then I actually found a book that was republished just in the past year, Um, and it's a German book from 1959 called Horoskop und Himmelhasser by Dr. Walter Koch and William Knappich. This is a book in German from 1959 where they go through the different systems of house division, And these were two astrologers. Um, Koch actually was the inventor of the Koch system of houses, which became very prominent in the late 20th century and even still today, many astrologers Mm -hmm. use. But they both had um, classical training, so they could read Greek and Latin texts. And they do talk very explicitly about about the Greek astrologers using the signs as houses and talk about that as being like the earliest system and then how other systems were invented and developed after that point. So I wanted to point that out, just because that means, at least in some German text, I don't think this book was very well circulated, and I didn't find mm-hmm. it in Holden's big bibliograph- bibliography, for example. Yeah. But it means at least some of the German astrologers were aware of this way before, like three decades before James Holden was doing his work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the Germans in the in the twenties and the thirties decades of the twentieth century have are very active in astrology, and their astrology is a lot centered on mathematics mathematics, directions, calculations. So if there is someone in the early historiography of the twentieth century that noticed that would be uh, the German author. So perhaps uh, that's a place to look for for that reference, yeah,
0: right for sure. All right. Um, So let's get sorry for that like long digression. It just brings up a lot of stuff (laughs) I've been working on, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, for past several years. So why don't we get back to your presentation where we left off? Was at the Alcabitius system. Um, So sorry, I keep stealing the screen back from you. So we'll have to share it again. Okay. So we've just talked about Alcabitius and that becoming the sort of standard system from the fifth century onward, especially during the medieval
1: uh, period. So,
0: what comes after that?
1: Exactly, uh, and then um, one system that is currently constantly being referred to, although I'm not so sure about how popular it it was. Uh, I'm still a bit. Um, I don't have enough data on it. Uh, it's the, the what we know as the Campanos uh, system. Mm-hmm. Um, which as far as we know in terms of study is attributed to Al-Biruni or at least Al-Biruni describes the system and uh, claims himself to be its inventor.
0: Okay. Uh, <laughs> and he's the, he <laughs> so lived in the 10th century?
1: 10th century, yes. Um, so he, um, so I think, transitioned between the 10th and 11th century, so late 10th century, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, so, in one of these tables, and I think it's uh, Julio Samsa that detected this in one of these papers, um, which is called, I think, entitled Al Biruni, uh, he detected this. So, uh, he's describing what we later will be known as the Campano system very early on. And um, there appears to to be to exist several discoveries of this system, so several uses of this system from slightly different perspectives throughout the uh, late 10th and 11th century in the um, Islamic European world. Uh, so we're talking mainly the Iberian Peninsula and the North Africa. Um, why is it ascribed to Campanus? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Campanus ever did describe this system, but it appears to become popular in the 15th century. So 14th, 15th century, um, especially uh, in the 15th century, by uh, this author, um, what's his name? Is um, Johannes Gazulus. So I think it's Gazuli. It's his non-Latinized name, uh, who lived um in the first half, roughly in the first half of the fifteenth century. And he uh created tables for it and it he was a he was working in Italy in Padua, if I recall correctly, and he uh was an advocate, a strong advocate of this system. Um uh and you said that's in the
0: fifteenth fifteenth
1: century. Fifteenth century, yeah.
0: Okay, so that's when it becomes popularized, and it's attributed to Campanus of Novara, who was like an Italian mathematician and astronomer and astrologer who lived in the 13th century.
1: Exactly, exactly. So Campanus appears, although it's a bit early, it appears more or less at the same time as the next system, uh, which is um, the Regiomontanus, Montanus, um, what we call the Regiomontanus division. Which again, it's one of the first descriptions appears to be by Al-Zayani in the eleventh in the passage between the eleventh and the uh, tenth and eleventh century. Uh, although there are evidences uh, in astrolabes plates that these systems might have been in use or similar versions of these systems could have been used before. I think one of the earliest is uh, in the eighth century. So everything, all these dates can be uh, much earlier than this, so one, two, three centuries earlier. Mm-hmm. But this is the data we have currently. Um, and uh, it's then popularized by uh, Reggio Montano's works.
0: Okay. Um, and later,
1: Roger,
0: yeah. Reggio Montanus so, was like a German mathematician and astronomer mm-hmm. and astrologer. Yeah,
1: a very famous one. Um, and he wrote a series of tables um, and a series of works on mathematics. Very famous. is uh, constantly being referenced in his time, in his own time and later and he is more or less contemporary with gazuli that i was referring to and there appears to have been although this is not this is highly understudied a sort of a regional war between german mathematicians and italian mathematicians as what would be the best house system so there's a nationality thing here, you know <laughs> um, and uh, Reggio Montano system that w- wins uh, uh, over uh, Campanos. Um, but it is interesting uh, to see different schools here in this case of mathematics and astronomy competing to have the, the most perfect house system uh, for astrological practice.
0: Yeah, there's also some like textual and historical things going on because I did in episode 244 of the astrology podcast, I interviewed Anthony Lewis and we talked about how how did Placidus become the most popular house system was the title of the episode. And we talked about how sometimes some of the different systems were coming into vogue because the authors were um, arguing that this was the system that Ptolemy meant to use or, or they thought that he described in his text and so sometimes they were certain systems were coming p- prominent for that reason
1: yeah exactly all of these systems we see here are either attributed to hermes ptolemy or some earlier author mm. and um there appears to there appears to be evidences that some of the earlier authors appear to have used them or use similar things the thing is nowadays, most of our knowledge of house systems is extracted from astrology books. You know, So uh, if a, a manual in astrology describes a house system or it has a, a chart example, but that is not the best source for this issue. The best source for this would be the tables. Uh, so the books uh, that uh, teach how to calculate um, charts. Uh, and the manuals for instruments, namely the astrolab, which we'll speak in, in a moment. But um, those are the texts where you see them debating how to calculate how systems and that's where the most of this information comes from because most of the time in an astrology book, they're not going to argue which system they're using. They're just interpreting things and just going with it. They're, they're practicing. They're not doing all the mathematical conceptual work in there. Um, you know. So for example, Reggio Montano's systems, uh, which he calls the rational system, um, uh, the modus racionales, so the, the, the rational division, um, it's discussed in his tables of right ascension. So his tables of ascension, it's it's there where where, where all of this is is worked. Um yeah. And it is the most popular uh, system in the early modern period and extending to the early decades of the 20th century. So, Reg- although Regiomontanus. Regiomontanus. Say, so oh, right. you, you still find schools using Regiomontanus uh, in the early decades of um, the 20th century, namely German schools of astrology. And-
0: and uh, part of the reason also there's been a more recent revival of it because uh, William Lilly, I believe, used Regiomontanus mm-hmm. houses, right?
1: Yeah. Well, if if someone in the 16th and 17th century is using something else other than Regiomontanus, they will be a very strange case. because. Mm-hmm. M- it's almost universal. Everyone uses Regiomontanus. And you see in the house discussions, you know, when they explain the various methods in the mathematical books, they they state the ancients, which we never know if it's whole science system or uh, equal houses because they're not very clear on that. They describe Campanos division, and then they jump into Regiomontanus Montanos as being the true way of dividing the house system. And this is so universal. That um, the system becomes, uh, you know, almost, I would say, uh, almost to 100% usage at this period. There okay. are here and there are a few exceptions, I think, but very, very few, very few.
0: Okay. Um, so, yeah, and then Lily's endorsement of Regia Montanus, then because that was the earliest major English textbook on astrology, then. Held some weight or carried some weight with it, and continues to where, for example, due to the traditional revival of um, like astrologers starting in the 1980s in the UK starting to reprint in 1985 William Lilly's Christian Astrology and use that again. There yeah. was a sudden revival of Regiomontanus, where because they wanted mm-hmm. to emulate that approach to traditional horary astrology from the 17th century, a number exactly. of astrologers then started using Regiomontanus again for horary so that some schools of astrology now still endorse that as the best system to use um, mm-hmm. as a result of that
1: that emulation of William Lilly. William yeah. Uh, let's say that um, almost well. the first line of reconstruction of the tradition was early modern astrology of which will was a basis and because it was in English, it was not in Latin or any other uh, strange language. It had a lot of popularity. So when people were rebuilding uh, and reviving, so re- relearning horary, uh, they would be using the system that he was using. So so that's that's the main reason why uh, um, Reggio Montanos is, the, it is claimed to be the one that people use when doing horary. That's because they, they, that's how they learn. However, in different periods, people will be using uh, other systems for the practice of orary. So um, that's not exclusive of orary. And that is is perhaps a message that we should uh, state here is that um, until the 20th century, the late 20th century, there is no discussion on a better system for this or a better system for that. You know, the entire practice is uniform. So you're not going to use. Uh, something for mundane, something for orary, something for nativities. You're using the same system throughout your practice. Uh, There's not even that I'm aware of absolutely no discussion on uh, using different systems for different purposes. It's the same system. They're just arguing if it's better or worse, but uh, it's always the same throughout the entire practice.
0: Right. Um, So in terms of the application to the four major branches of astrology, which are mundane astrology, natal astrology, electional and horary. Once an astrologer picks a system, they tend to apply it to all of those consistently.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: exactly. Um, and just for historical purposes, I, I just had a good idea to to date the where we're at right now at this time in terms of the history of astrology, which is just if you go to astro.com or AstroDienst and you go to their extended chart selection, there's an option where you can switch your house system and the default system that it uses is Placidus, um, which it has here up at the top. But the other systems that it gives at this point in time are uh, Coke houses, Campanus, Regiomontanus, equal houses, um, equal from the midheaven, the hollow, whole sign houses, um, whole sign starting with Aries in the first, Meridian. Porphyry houses, there's Alchabicious houses, um, some other miscellaneous systems like I don't know, Krunsky, Pisa Golzer, Asmith, Morinus houses, Polish Page, APC, uh, a couple of versions of Poland, Sripati, which is a Vedic system, Carter Poli Equatorial, I have no idea what that is, something called Sunshine Houses, and something called Savard A houses. But for whatever it's worth, those are like the options in terms of the different forms of house division that they felt like making available or have had demand for in order to just like set um the stage for what some of the standards are today in terms of different forms of yeah, house division. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and in let me just pull up another thing again, just to for historical purposes, for our own point here in 20 what is it, 2021, um I can pull up um, astro.com, or not astro.com, I can pull up solar fire, and I won't share it. But the different forms of house division that they give are Campanus, Koch, Meridian, Marinus, Placidus, Porphyry, Regimontanus, Topocentric, Equal Houses, um, Zero Aries, Solar Sign. Then they have a bunch where you just put a planet on the first and do derivative houses from that planet. Uh, whole sign houses, Hindu Bhava houses, Alkabishas, a lot of fortune houses, and that's that's pretty much it. So I just thought it would be worth stating in terms of like the top systems that are commonly available to astrologers today in the different systems of house, uh, different programs or astrology software programs. And you know most of those, the core ones that astrologers actually use are the ones that we've just gone over in this overview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, was that the last house system, Reggie, or what, did you have Placidus in there?
1: I have Placidus also. Yeah.
0: Okay. Let's let's do that one then, really <laughs> quickly.
1: Yeah. One uh, of the strange things, just before we start with that um, mm-hmm. of these listings, is I have no idea why why they are not by alphabetical order. Right. Because I noticed at that At one too. point, I thought, well, it's they, they 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 arrange it by popularity, which I would understand. Mm-hmm. But not really. So most, pro- most softwares have this random order of house systems, which is quite weird. Um, but well, I have no idea why.
0: That's <laughs> a good point. Old. So it's like astra.com does Placidus at the top, which is their default, but then they do Coke, Campanus, regimontanus, equal, whereas um, Solar Fire in their order has Campanus, Coke, Meridian, marinus, Placidus. So it is very sort yeah. of ran- random
1: exactly for example morinos is usually up top and morinos is a very very obscure system i doubt right. that there's anyone using it at this point in time mm.
0: yeah yeah it is pretty obscure all right um i'm going to have to have you share your screen again sorry <laughs>
1: okay no problem
0: <laughs> all right and just for the audio the last system we described is Regiomontanus. montanus and then the last one the last major one that we have to mention at this point is placidus
1: yeah, so Placidus, the Placidus system is our last major player in the pre-modern world. Let's say so everything that's seventeenth century, early than the eighteenth century uh, to be more correct. Um, Placidus is a strange system, um, and we're going to see um, we're going to see that um, later on. Oh, sorry, I had some sort of failure here. Okay. So, as I was saying, um, so the Placida system is our major uh, player here, uh, the last one in the early modern period, um, and it's a strange system because it is extremely complicated mathematically. So, um, it is believed that uh, authors were aware of it since the eighth century. There, uh, there are some evidences that it could be there uh, in their minds and it could be, there are some descriptions of what it seems to be a placidus approach um but it is very complicated to produce mathematically so they're not going to go into it it's only when mathematics evolves uh uh, with equations that simplify the calculation that they are able to calculate it with precision. So it seems to be avoided by, by astrologers and so by astronomers because of this. This is at least what historians think at this point. It, the, the first description of this system appears to be Ebenezerah and Ebenezerah is attributing it again to Ptolemy, Hermes, um, Dorotheus, Masala and someone else I don't recall at this point, but he appears to be uh, ascribing it to earlier authors and there are some historians of mathematics who thinks that Mashallah is, um, is describing something that seems to be a Placidus system somewhere. Uh, I think most of these descriptions will not be in the astrological works, will be in other mathematical works that we usually not study. Um, but uh, yeah, I it's haven't in,
0: mm-hmm. like I
1: I know so so I know
0: that normally, so the name of this system, it comes from the seventeenth century. He was like a monk and a, a yeah. mathematics professor and astrologer mm-hmm. uh, named mm-hmm. Placidus de Titus or Placido de Titi, and he he published a work in like sixteen fifty that popularized that approach. But then Mm -hmm. I know I think Holden says that it's already described by Ibn Ezra at least by the 12th century, and then as you're saying, it could go back even earlier. But we're not I'm not fully sure.
1: Yeah, and Magini, uh, which is a few decades earlier than Placidus, also describes uh, this system uh, as well. And the what mathematicians call this system, and perhaps it's a better name, is the hour line system. And we're going to understand exactly why in a moment when we explain the, the different mathematics, but it's called the hour line system. And then um, Placida's work, it's so concise and so well presented um, that it becomes um, the standard system, at least in the English-speaking world. And I think that's also to do with a, a translation that it's done of his work very right. early on.
0: Into into English as well as some of like the historical arguments about arguing that it, it represented what the ancient authors intended or or other things like that like Ptolemy
1: yeah okay yeah. that's always the case you know uh, every argument every <laughs> every system here i think uh is going to be argued as being the original the one the, that Ptolemy intended et cetera, even when that doesn't make any sense you know it's very difficult to understand how are they getting to that conclusion but that's always yeah. the presentation yeah yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's
0: that's the historical overview, and <laughs> this is something that I think that was supposed to take like a five minute historical overview. We just turned into <laughs> seventy five minutes. So um, yeah. at this point, should we transition into talking about the um, how the different these different systems divide the chart?
1: Yeah. Exactly. I think that will that would be a good point to do that. Okay. Okay, so let's move on in the presentation. So we have to introduce a few concepts here in terms of um, celestial mechanics before we go into the divisions. okay? And uh, the first one is the existence of the celestial equator, which is a projection of the Earth's own equator into space, so in the in the celestial sphere in the sky that we see. And because this is emulating the Earth's rotation, every movement of every celestial object will follow, as we're going to see here, um, the equator. It will always move parallel to the equator, so it will rise, it will culminate in the line that we call the meridian, and then it will set in the west and it will do again the anti-culmination again at the meridian, and then again rise in the east after 24 hours, which is called the primary or diurnal movement. So. Every point in the heavens we're going, is going to do this turn, always parallel to the equator, um, in 24 hours, which is the, the Earth's rotation. So it's the phenomenon, uh, uh, the result of the phenomenon of, of Earth's rotation.
0: Okay, so so this is more most easily visualized with just thinking about how the sun rises each morning in the east, and then eventually culminates. Uh, in the middle of the day and then eventually sets in the evening in the west. And then eventually at like around the middle of the night, it reaches the anti-culmination and then eventually it rises again the next day 24 hours later. But that that process of the uh, primary motion, it's not just the Sun that does that, but also the Moon will rise and culminate and set and all of the other planets and stars in the sky will, will do the same motion of rising and culminating and setting each day.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So the entire celestial uh, objects will do this this uh, this movement. So this is going to be very important because this is the movement that we can observe very easily. So mm-hmm. we, we, it's difficult to observe planetary motion in the science, which is where we're usually focused as astrologers in terms of interpretation. But this is what we observe every day. If you just spend a few hours you know looking at the stars or looking at the sun experiencing the sun you can see it moves moving very fast
0: right so this is one of the two major movements so so one of the movements is the planets moving along the ecliptic or through the signs of the zodiac but they tend to do that very slowly um even the fastest planets tend to move through the zodiac relatively slowly so that you have to you have to go outside and view them over really long periods of time in order to see any movement against the backdrop of the stars. But this second um, movement, which is actually what we call primary or diurnal movement, uh, happens every day over a 24-hour period. Each of the planets and stars and other celestial bodies do a complete movement uh, in basically a day and a night.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So the ecliptic, so the signs and the ecliptic uh, is going to do these ver- this very same movement. So all signs will rise, culminate, set, anti-culminate, and rise again in 24 hours. So in 24 hours, the ecliptic is going to do this motion. But the ecliptic, because of the tilt in Earth's um, orbit, is going to be slightly off. Uh, there's a, a, a deviation from the, the the equator, which it's the which what explains the seasons because the sun will have different heights according to the sign where it is at a given moment of the year. It explains why certain signs rise faster than others, uh, and the difference in um, in their uh, rising and setting in different areas of the world. So this is going to explain a lot of the phenomenon we observe throughout. Uh, the, the The turning of charts and seeing how charts move throughout the day and this is going to set um these points and here we're not talking about any house system in particular this is a very you know generic way of seeing an ascendant will always be the point of the ecliptic that's rising in the east the descendant the one that's setting in the west, which is the opposite point the um, the mid heaven um or the MC is going to be the degree of the ecliptic that's culminating at a given moment. And of course, the IC also known as the angle of Earth is going to be the opposing degree which is anti at that point. And it's from this uh, structure that the idea of house divisions appears. Um, right. So, and just hold on to
0: linger on that last one for a moment. So it's not just that the the Sun Rises over the eastern horizon each morning and then sets in the west each evening. And it's not just that the other planets rise over the eastern horizon at some point during the day and, and culminate in the set, but also the signs of the zodiac will rise up and emerge over the eastern horizon and then eventually culminate overhead and then eventually set each day as well. And that's the concept of the rising sign. And that gives concept, gives um, rise to the concept of the ascendant and it's because we, we call it that we call it the rising sign or the ascendant because that's the sign of the zodiac that literally rises up or emerges over the eastern horizon uh, you know at either the moment of birth in a birth chart or at whatever that moment is that you're cast in the chart for. Yeah
1: exactly exactly. So all our mechanics of the heavens comes from this uh, um, from this, motion that drags the ecliptic, so the zodiac and the planets which are moving in there in 24 hours throughout the time. And even even in watches, so so analog watches, the, the moving of of the, of the pointers of the, of the of the hour follows exactly this motion. So the clockwise and anti-clockwise motion, has its origin in the astronomical movement. So it's it's emulating again what is observable by experience uh, when you look at the heavens daily.
0: Right. Um, could we could we go back and look at that animation again of the signs? Just one yeah, backwards. Sure. Um just because that's so useful to see the um oh, sorry. the signs of the zodiac bit, and how yes. they they rise over the horizon in order to really understand that concept of the rising sign, which is really that's the fundamental basis of where the houses start. Is with just with that notion of identifying what is the sign that is rising or emerging on the eastern horizon, and then you you freeze it. Like for example, here Gemini is rising, and that becomes the ascendant. Um, but some, something that trips people up sometimes is the fact that you know the diurnal motion it moves like you were saying clockwise. Um, whereas the planets move through the signs of the zodiac the opposite direction, which exactly. is counterclockwise.
1: counterclockwise.
0: And what's interesting about that is that leads to a little discrepancy then where we actually number the houses based on the direction of the signs and the direction of the movement of the planets through the signs of the zodiac. So you start with the Ascendant becomes the first house and then you go downwards uh, towards the second house, then the third house and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're going to see that exactly in the next animation. So I might go forward with that. Yeah. So let's imagine a a division of some sort. This is not representing any system, it's just dividing simply by by So again, here we see what you were saying, Chris. So the numbering is made in the opposite direction of the movement, most likely because it's going to be the first segment that rises the second segment that rises the third segment or the third sign that rises etc so it's following mm-hmm. the, the the sequence of rising uh, of the planet. so whatever it's in the 12 has already risen so it's not going to rise for another uh, complete rotation right so that and is the the, the se- and then if you we- also
0: because in the in the whole sign system because uh, to whatever extent that was one of the earliest systems once you establish the rising sign then you just number the signs in zodiacal order yeah. from there downwards, yeah. and that because that's the order of the signs, that's also probably why that's the order of the houses
1: uh, as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the counting. You counting mm-hmm. from the rising sign. Yeah, and, and what,
0: so what's e- sorry, just to interject, but what's interesting about that is there was possibly an earlier system from the Egyptian tradition based on the decans, where they would look at the rising decan, which is like a, a ten degree area mm-hmm. of space where the Ascendant was mm-hmm. and they'd look yeah. at which Deccan yeah. was rising, the number
1: that uh,
0: going downwards as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With, we have to think that this is connected also to the measurement of time. Um, so uh, the measurement of time, the understanding of astronomical motion and astrology, so the interpretation of, of, of celestial motion, everything is connected into one single entity initially. So, the decans have also to do with uh, not only interpretation wise but also to the counting of time. So, what's rising, what's culminating. So, you can more or less measure time, being it measure in terms of, of quantity or measuring in terms of quality when you're making the judgment. So so. Yeah, that that's quite
0: clear. So, Although it's interesting that these were like separate reference systems from almost like different astrological traditions at one point where you have the Mesopotamians who were really focused on the zodiac and the movement of the uh, planets around the ecliptic and through the signs of the zodiac versus you have the Egyptians focusing on the Deccans and which Deccan was rising or culminating or setting at different points. And then what we see here Basically, starting in the first century BCE, was the synthesis of those two separate reference points into one system, where you get the signs of the zodiac and the diurnal movement um, f- sort of synthesized or fused into one approach.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think we see that in a lot of of quotes. Oh, if we look at astrology, it, it 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 may it appears to be a mix of there are several traditions that start to be combined. Uh, into a, a whole system uh that then develops uh by itself yeah, mm-hmm. yeah okay okay so here we have so this is going to be the cusps if we're dividing it by that way
0: right so you just divide the once you've established the four angles then um the a division four, of some
1: sort yeah
0: right the four quadrants get D- the four um, quarters of that circle get divided into quarters, and then those quarters get divided into thirds, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. Here, what we see described is a sort of equal house system, very roughly, and this this doesn't have any astronomical value because it's not projecting any specific uh, time. It's just an explanation of how it moves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, so we've got. So here 12. we are.
1: The signs moving. Throughout the houses again, you know. So these spaces are going to be moved upon if you consider them as spaces, or if you consider that it's the signs themselves who create the houses as they go. Um, yeah. So sure. this is the idea. So you've That's, got
0: 12, 12 signs of the zodiac and
1: twelve houses. Yeah, exactly. So there's a connection there, uh, evidently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we come to starting to approach the problem of the house systems which is going to be um, the matter of division. So if we consider when um, I'm going to use the example of five degrees of Taurus rising for the latitude of Lisbon because that was the example I had prepared initially. Um, so if we consider that five degrees of Taurus is rising, uh, the 90-degree position to that uh, um, To that point is going to be five degrees Aquarius. So Aquarius will be the point that is exactly nine degrees from the ascending degrees measured in the ecliptic. Okay. However, because we have a discrepancy between the equator, which is where the movement of rising and setting is being made, it's the the motor, the, 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 the motion, the origin of the motion, there's going to be a discrepancy here. And if we measure 90 degrees in the ecliptic, it's going to be different if we measure 90 degrees in the equator. So 90 degrees in the equator, it's going to equivalent in this case for this latitude to 105 degrees in the ecliptic. Then you have you don't have the, the MC at five degree Aquarius, you have it the meridian, so that line in the center of your observation area in the sky, it's going to equate to 20 degrees Capricorn at the latitude of Lisbon. So in a different latitude, it will have a different um, different value. So here it is one of the first problems. So when we are saying that we are dividing the quadrant, are we dividing the ecliptic? Are we dividing the equator or something else? Um, and this has been a discussion that's come up a lot uh, recently in the the practitioners of tradition because that point in Aquarius um, at 5-degree Aquarius is going to be what is called the nonagesimal. So the point of the ecliptic that is in 90 degrees uh, from the Ascendant. Um, So it's going to be the point uh, in reference to the Ascendant that's going to be at the highest level. However, uh, it's not the point that's going to be at the center of our observation field. So the meridian is always south, as we're going to see in the diagram. So if you're watching south and you're trying to understand the exact point, the midterm of the movement, of the diurnal movement, the midheaven will be the point where things are culminating. Um, so there is this difference, but it's not going to be necessarily the 90 degree. From the ascendant, measured in the ecliptic, and this is going to cause some trouble at least um, early on, right?
0: Yeah, because so, so the issue becomes um, fundamental issue with house division is just how to divide the circle and what method to use to divide the houses into twelve sectors, and mm-hmm. then there becomes an issue also about um, the use of the ascendant as the starting point uh, for calculating the houses, and then also the use of the mid-heaven and what you consider to be the mid-heaven, uh, and whether it's the meridian or whether it's the nonagesimal, which is exactly 90 degrees or, or what have you.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. Um,
0: mm-hmm. I like this diagram partially because um, you've colored the bottom half below the Ascendant brown because anything below the Ascendant-Descendant axis is actually below the Earth from the perspective of the observer, where You kind of have to imagine you're standing in the middle of the chart, any chart that you're looking at, and anything in the bottom half of the chart at least below the exact degrees of the Ascendant Descendant Axis is below the horizon or below the Earth, and anything above the Ascendant Descendant Axis is um, above the horizon and is in the sky and is visible um, in the top half of the chart basically. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So with the meridian, do you want to um, do you have any other slides to explain the meridian or to dwell on that because I'm not sure if that's clear, or would this be a good time to switch to something like Stellarium to show? We what can, the mer- we can meridian switch, is? yeah,
1: yeah, okay. Let's switch to Stellarium and, and see this in another way. So, let me do here a new chair, uh, okay. So, here we are seeing the same thing that we have been seeing in these diagrams, but here with the projection. Uh, in where we can see in blue the the equator, this is again for the latitude of Lisbon. In orange, we are seeing the ecliptic. Here it is the sun, Mercury and Venus see the planets very close to the ecliptic degree. Okay And that let's, yeah
0: let's dwell on that point. So the the ecliptic then, as we can see here is, because we didn't really define what that is earlier, is the path of the sun and the other planets from our vantage point around Earth. And it's actually a very strict path or sort of like a band where they they stay on this specific path where they move through the sky. And that's actually how ancient uh, astronomers and sky observers first identified the planets is that you can see them moving as these little stars that will, instead of staying fixed like the other fixed stars, they actually start moving across this very strict predefined path, which is the ecliptic or what later became known as the zodiac.
1: Exactly. And here, because we are, we're we having an astronomy program and not an astrology program, you're seeing degrees. So 120 degrees, we see there where the Sun is, is equivalent to Leo. 150, it's equivalent to the beginning of Virgo, so zero Virgo. 180, it's zero Libra, which is right on the equator. So it's where the ecliptic and the equator intercept. It's going to be in zero Libra and zero Aries. So that's why they're called the equinoxes. So when the Sun's there, the equal um, there is an equal amount of day and night. And when the Sun is off that, so in this case, for example, this is a northern hemisphere, the Sun is above the equator in the ecliptic, so it will take longer to do its path. So the Sun will make a path trajectory throughout the day It will rise somewhere here. Um, near the east and will follow a trajectory which is more or less parallel to, well, it's not more or less, it's parallel to the equator. And then it's going to set somewhere here at the north and north of, of the, uh, the west. So, um, and it's because it's above, it's going to spend more time in the, in the sky. So we have longer days and shorter nights. It's only when it is exactly in the interception in the equator, so in this 180 degrees or in zero degrees, that also so that zero Libra and zero Aries, that is the night the, the trajectory will follow east and west exactly so the day and night are equal because it is equal distribute uh according to to the to the horizon, you know, to, to the below and the above.
0: Right. Okay. Um and so one of the points you're making was that the tropical zodiac is Basically, a measurement of space or a number of degrees that's measured out from uh, the spring equinox from zero degrees mm-hmm. of Aries, exactly. which is zero degrees or the starting point of the ecliptic. Um, and um, here we actually have what is 270? I'm trying to like count that up really quickly because we have about 270 of the ecliptic is rising, it's not exactly okay. east. That's one it's of the other. It's
1: Capricorn. Pa- yeah, it's early Capricorn. So 270, it's zero Capricorn. Okay. So that's going to be probably two, three Capricorn rising at this particular point in time.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's one interesting piece. Then this is one of the things that complicates the house division issue is that the ecliptic isn't always exactly due east, but sometimes mm-hmm. it, it like fluctuates and can be more um, north or south, basically, at different times.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in terms of the motion, this is our grid. Uh, You have the meridian right on the middle. So half the motion until it hits the meridian and the second half of the motion will occur after it hits the meridian. The green um, semi-arc that we see there, it's called the prime vertical. Let's not look at that at this point. I'll explain what it is later on. but if we animate it, perhaps it's easier. Let me check yeah, if I can animate this. Oh, let me accelerate this a bit. So if we accelerate this animation, here it is. This is a nice pace. We can see. So the sun is going to set now, mm-hmm. and you can see the difference um, of um, height in. Um, Sorry, I just need to do something on my computer, but you can see the different uh, movements of the zodiac.
0: Yeah, so the ecliptic um, can sometimes get like higher or lower during the course of the day. Exactly. What we're seeing right now is the uh, Saturn and Jupiter just passed over the meridian, and the meridian is the quadrant midheaven. Now we see the moon exactly. is passing over yeah. the meridian and whenever exactly one of the pla- planets pass over the meridian that also is their highest elevation at that point in the day.
1: Exactly. So in terms of motion, any point of the sky will hit its highest elevation when it hits the meridian.
0: And so that's interesting in terms of the planets. And and then we can see then why the degree of the quadrant midheaven would be considered like a point of power or when a planet is at its height. Although it's kind of interesting in terms of um, some of the other arguments for. Like the in terms of the nonagesimal with the quadrant or with the equal house system, where the the mid heaven is the ninety degree point relative to the ascendant, and that can that's basically the highest point of the ecliptic at that moment in time. And sometimes the ecliptic can actually be higher in elevation than um, the planets are at that moment. Yeah.
2: So it, I was just thinking of that.
1: Yeah, we need to focus on a point, and it that because that elevation is measured always to a degree, a, a planetary position, etc. For example, for mm-hmm. example, Saturn is culminating now at this moment, but right. this area of the ecliptic where the moon is is much higher. in it's terms actually of higher. The horizon.
0: Yeah. See, and I, I th- and I think that's where, when it comes to this whole house division debate, we run into an issue because both of those seem. Let's just say, from a symbolic standpoint, in terms of symbolism and like omenology or what have you, both of those are symbolically significant in some way. Like the highest point that a planet gets to versus the highest point of the zodiac at some moment in time, we could see how both of those could have um, some sort of symbolic, independent symbolic significance. So that that's why it may not be entirely one or or that it has to be one or the other, but they both could be relevant in some general way.
1: Perhaps, perhaps, yes. You, you do, we do have that idea of a planet being elevated over another when exactly it's doing a superior square to that uh, planetary position, you know. So it has, it overpowers the other planet and that, that remains in an aspect, even if it's not in that position, but it will be at a certain point in time, uh, zodiacally speaking. So it carries that power, uh, because through its motion, it's going to get that higher, uh, Advantage before the other planet. So it wins. Uh, It has the higher ground first. Um, So, and this is a genesis of the symbolism, you know. So, but I think the problem then is that um, how do you account for this uh, culmination? Is it a zodiacal culmination in the sense that it's it's the ecliptic that determines that? Or is it the meridian where you observe that point coming into its place of power? So that's. Where the debate, the initial debate, comes regarding the the non-agesimal and and the MC,
0: and and so one of the things about that's important to understand about the meridian is that the meridian is also exactly where the due south, that like the north south axis is, and so it's exactly halfway in terms of directionality between east and west. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. For those in the southern hemisphere, this all this motion is going to be happening towards the north and not towards the south. Uh, that's the main difference. Uh, okay.
0: Okay, cool. Um, I think that's pretty pretty good.
1: Yeah, let me just stop this. Okay. We can go back to it if we need. And let me go back to here at this point where you had this difference of... Um, so this is difference in the chart, you know, where the Midheaven would be in one way or the other.
0: Sure. So you were showing how if you have five degrees of Taurus rising at the latitude of Lisbon, that if you measured 90 degrees, well, you have the meridian on the one hand, which in this instance would be at 20 degrees of Capricorn um, versus if you just measured 90 degrees upwards to the nonagesimal, which is the 90-degree point in the ecliptic, that's like the highest spot in the zodiac versus the meridian which is showing the north-south division line.
1: Exactly, exactly. Okay.
0: So uh-huh. that becomes tricky because different house systems define the Midheaven in different ways to some extent in a, in a sort of loose sense so that in the equal house system, the Midheaven is always exactly 90 degrees from the Ascendant, whereas in any quadrant house system, the Midheaven will move in relation to the Ascendant and but that still nonetheless is the starting point of the 10th house cusp
1: yeah and i think also uh, something that has to be counted is that visually in terms of observation it's much easier to detect the meridian to determine the meridian from your local space and your local horizon than to determine the highest point of the ecliptic because uh it's easier to measure in term, in not only by with the eyes but also with an instrument Which creates a discrepancy between what you can see and what you can measure. So we have we have to say that, for example, for most of the time uh, of the history, you do not have a representation of the zodiac uh, as a a, as a ruler like we have here in a chart, because it's highly complicated to 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 draw this uh, and to draw this consecutively would be difficult. So you have uh, an equal wheel, you know, either square or round. An equal division, and you just mark um, the signs or the cusp degrees. So it's symmetrical oh, in that right. way.
0: You're saying that that not all previous chart displays were proportional like they are today, but instead they tended to be like more standardized in terms of the divisions.
1: Exactly. You're not seeing the zodiac. You don't see this. This zodiac. Uh, it's very rare. If if it exists, I, I don't can't recall at this point any example where they draw the zodiac uh, this is i think perhaps a late uh, 19th century uh, or or even 20th century development because it's easier to print uh, it becomes easier and the computer does it for you <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah it's Although easy that, to display it like this yeah
0: you know chart styles change from era to era and from tradition to tradition because you also Sometimes in like the early Hellenistic tradition, you did have just the zodiac and they would just tell you what sign the Ascendant is located in and then that's the first house. And then they would just list the sign that the rest of the planets are in because then those are in the other houses relative to the rising sign. So it really shifts and changes depending on like what era we're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, a lot from simple lists to more complex diagrams. But what we see, I think, consistently throughout history, is that they never draw a zodiac like we see here at this point. You know, because it's too complicated to draw an image like this by hand or with a little quill. It's going to be difficult to do this. Even circular uh, charts um, are not favored uh, on all parts. On, on every time of history, it depends really on the medium in which they are drawing the chart. Uh, Because, for example, with uh, um, parchment or paper, uh, it's not easy to draw a circle there. You need a uh, compass, and that takes a lot of time. So, they usually select the square chart. Uh,
0: Yeah, here's a let me show an example of a square chart from Lily just to back up mm -hmm. that point that you're making, just because it's interesting to understand the way that charts are conceptualized in different eras. So, here's like a square or a diamond chart pattern from Exactly. William exactly. Lilly's Christian astrology from 1640. It looks like this chart set for 1646. Yeah.
1: And here you see the house sizes are equal in that sense, you no? Know? So the emphasis is on the space being divided equally, whatever that means in in mathematical or astronomical terms. And then the, the differences will be on on the cusps you know the, the the difference you will only notice different house systems if you look at the cusp numbers. So if you're looking at one of these charts with uh, so let's say one with alcabitius, the other with Campanos and Regio Montanos, it's difficult to identify which one it's which unless you do the calculations and see exactly uh the calculations of the cusps to to make the difference um, Yes, yeah. so there's a certain evenness there. Uh, on the houses, centered on the houses.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. So there's a lot of like abstraction going on in terms of taking that three dimensional um, visual image that we were just mm-hmm. looking at in Stellarium and then projecting that onto a two dimensional image. Sometimes things get flattened out and look much more simple than they actually are astronomically. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: Okay. All right. So let's okay. go back. Um, let's now. Um, begin your, our you'll have to share your screen again.
1: Yeah here we are and I'm going okay. to so let me start the animation again. Okay so now let's move on from this area of the to this topic of the community and let's start to look at the different reference points uh in which the divisions will take place. I think now we can start going for our divisions. Okay. So Let's, this is my attempt to make a 3D version of what we've been seeing so far. So let's say that this is the horizon, so the celestial sphere, so, and you have the observer in the middle. Um, the space of the observer is going to be divided by the, the four cardinal points, so south, east, north, and west, and then the point right above the observer's head, the zenith. And then the nadir, which will be the point just below the observation, the, the point of observation. So, and these is the six directions of space, of which the seventh is the center. So you need these six um, points in space to determine a location
0: okay. uh, in the sphere.
1: So uh, so the
0: six points are north, south, east, and west, and then straight up above your head and down below your head, and it's always and it's always relative to the perspective of the observer where they're placed on Earth at that point in time. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Okay. So this is your placement, so the local space, let's say. Mm -hmm. Then you are going to divide this further on into the meridian. The meridian is going to be what is called a great circle. A great circle is any circle that we we draw in the sphere that divides it exactly in half. So every time we draw a circle in the sphere uh, that cuts it in exactly half, that will be a great circle. So here we have two of them. Uh, One is this, the meridian uh, here in sort of brownish yellow. That's going from north, zenith, south, nadir, north again. So it's cutting uh, the sphere in half north to towards south. And we have the horizon itself, which is going to be a great circle here as well, as it cuts the, the the sphere in half with our observation point. Then we're going to have another one, which is the complementary one to the to the meridian, which is called the prime vertical, which is going to cut east zenith west nadir. So this is dividing, and this is where the quadrants come from. So this is dividing the sphere into four. Uh, parts. It's like you you're observing something and you divide your observation point in middle. So what's in front of you and what's behind you? That would be the meridian because you're observing south, and then you're going to do what? Like extend your arms and do another great circle from east to west, passing over your head, and getting back to the other side. So this is going to divide into um, in front of you. Uh, behind you um, towards your right or towards your left. Okay, This is the division of space.
0: And when it comes to the zenith, there's like a little bit of discrepancy or confusion because sometimes different people use the term zenith to mean different things. And I know we were talking about the other day that there is a distinction between the meridian versus the zenith um, being separate concepts, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, the, the zenith, the meridian passes through the zenith, so, uh, but it's not the zenith. Um, the zenith is the point right above your head. It's a very simple definition, straightforward on your head. It's not something that is going to appear in the chart unless you were talking about the projection. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in a moment. Right. Okay. So this is the local space, the structure of your local space, and then how do you divide the celestial fear from your point of observation? Then, you have the the celestial referential. So, how do you measure the planetary and star movement in the sky? So, you're going to have a new set of, uh, of, of systems. You're going to have the equator which we already seen. So, the equator will transverse the heavens from east to west at a given altitude and this altitude varies according to your latitude so the more south you are, the more um, more upwards the, the tilt will be. If you're in the Earth's equator at a latitude of zero north slash south, then the equate the celestial equator will be right above your head and then it will coincide with the zenith. Okay. That's so the what, only point in the earth. Yeah.
0: What are some like cities where you're at, like zero degrees? Do you know roughly or countries?
1: Well, Ecuador, <laughs> Ecuador. <laughs> that okay, yeah, that's, most that's pretty straightforward. Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you oh. if you go to Ecuador City, it is quite close to the um, to the to the to the meridian. Then you look upward, and you see the entire heaven you know, just passing through above your head. You know, that's why the closer you are to the equator, the the fast the sunrise and sunsets are. Because gotcha. the sun is coming straight forward, you know, straight forward from the east, so it rises very quickly, and it's going to put go down very quickly towards the west. Well, if you are in north, let's say Scotland, there is going to be an inclination. So, if you this is be the inclination of of the equator and uh, of the celestial um, equator in the Earth's equator, and then if you are, for example, let's say Scotland or somewhere in up north. It's going to do this, so it means that whatever is rising, it's going to Hold take a long more time.
0: Yes, yeah. do that hand motion again, just because I want to make sure you're on the screen for that.
1: Yeah. So the okay. sun is going, or whatever is going to rise. Like and this. that's if you're
0: on long the equator. Time.
1: If no, if you're out of the equator, up north.
0: Okay. Here, let me share uh, just from Wikipedia to help people visualize this. Literally, just a map map of the equator. And what we're talking about in terms of um, you know, where the equator is in, in terms of the middle of the earth and in terms of latitude, um, versus being north of that. Like, for example, all of the United States or all of Europe is pretty far north of the equator versus countries that are south of the equator.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Got it. Okay. So back to what you were saying.
1: Okay. So and perhaps we can see this on the, solar, uh, the Stellarium. Let me see if I can put that up because I think that's interesting because it's going to pop up in the whole systems. So let me share Stellarium here. Okay. Let me change our perspective here and move towards east and center our observation on east. Okay. So as you can see, at the Lisbon um, latitude, the equator has this inclination. And the ecliptic will have this one. So if I can put this a bit straight forward. So, yeah. so you see, here you have the, the equator's angle at this latitude. If we move to another place on Earth, let me change our location. Um, where is it? Is it here? Yes, it is. So let's pick Ecuador, here somewhere. Let me.
0: I think you can search it, or I guess you'd have to have like
1: a. Yeah, let's put it right on top of the equator so we can see exactly 0000 south or north. It doesn't matter. Okay. And here we are. See? You cannot distinguish. Between the prime vertical or the equator. See? 14 hours. The equator is right, you know, it's exactly straight line up.
0: Due east.
1: Yeah. And if we put things in motion, for example, so so that you can see the motion. Here it is. See? Things are coming straight up. Now the ecliptic is going to be a little bit off, of course. Mm -hmm. But as you can see, things are rising very quickly because they are. Going just straight up there. Okay, this is the good about these programs because you can see it.
0: Yeah, very for easily. those curious, this is a, actually a freeware program. It's a free astronomy program, program called Stellarium. If anyone wants to Google and download that, it can be useful for learning the observational astronomy underlying astrology.
1: Exactly. So here it is. So everything is coming up in a straight line because. Everything is rising. See the moon? The moon is just making a line up because it's coming parallel to the equator, which is exactly at a 90 degree angle from the horizon.
0: Okay, got it. So, but for most other countries that are north or south of the equator, there's more of an an inclination, basically,
1: right? Exactly. Now, let's see the same thing. Let me stop this. And let's see this way, way up north. So, let me change the location again and let me place, for example, somewhere here.
0: Norway, Denmark, Sweden?
1: Yeah. Okay. As we can see, the inclination is quite different.
0: Okay. So, press play again. Let me see it move and
1: what it looks like. Okay, sorry. Here it goes. See? Things are coming.
0: Okay, so it's with a very slant. low angle, right? So it's
1: good. they're going to take a long time to 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 rise. Got it.
0: So it's more sort of slanted instead of going straight up vertically. Exactly. All right. Um. All right. So that I think that makes sense more or less, or at least gives people a general sense of <laughs> of that how it moves. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's go um, here back. Here we
1: see the ecliptic coming in right. Because we have a, a very high latitude. This is going to be relevant. The ecliptic almost rose entirely at the same time. I'll go back a bit so you can see. This is important because this is going to complicate calculation of houses on higher latitudes. This is it, you see. The ecliptic at one point here, there are several degrees of the ecliptic rising. Oops, sorry. It's not easy to control the speed. Let's see, it's coming there. Mm -hmm. And now it's going to make a curve. So there are at least two points of the ecliptic rising at the same time. Okay. And this is where things start to be problematic because then you have degrees that rise simultaneously. This is very high polar latitude. Um, Degrees that rise simultaneously or... um, Certain parts of the ecliptic won't rise at all. Um,
0: yeah, so especially is in the poles. Yeah. Why, when you get super far north, some of the different forms of house division either become very distorted or, or sort of break down entirely?
1: Yeah, collapse entirely. Okay,
0: so let's go okay. back to the presentation and see um, how we apply that or, or how some of those references work then in terms of the different forms of house division. Yeah.
1: Okay, so we were talking about the equator and how the equator was differently slanted uh, depending on your latitude, as we just saw in, in Stellarium. And of course the ecliptic will be at a certain point, and this is a given point in time. It's going to have that 23 and a half degrees deviation from the equator. Um, and then we can um here it is Aries and uh, Libra, the points zero Aries zero libra, the points where where the ecliptic and the equator intercept as we discussed before, and then the belt, the zodiacal belt which is the area where the planets move. So because they, they will not move exactly on top of the ecliptic, they can be a bit north, a bit south, that's the zodiacal latitude. Uh, so you you draw the zodiac as a belt to account for that uh, slight difference that they can have from time okay. to time. Right. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: okay. So, what we are going to do, and now we're going finally to the explanation of how's the vision (laughs) going. Right. We're going, we're taking our sweet time getting there. So,
0: (laughs) we're only two hours and five minutes in the episode. So, we're doing, we're making very good progress.
1: Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Taking into account the complexity. So, here we are. uh, Now, everything in one. Diagram, that's why it's difficult to represent. So, how you hear the spatial coordinates of the meridian, the prime vertical, as well as the celestial references of the equator and the zodiac. And now, what are we going to do? We're going to slice this through the meridian because it's easy to represent this in 2D, uh, 3D will be complicated. So, we're going to have our observer, the meridian. And east. This is like we are outside the universe and we're looking at the east point. So here we have the meridian, south, north, east, because we're looking from that position. And then we have uh, dividing this in half the prime vertical. And it is from this that we divide things. Then we have the equator, let's say at the given latitude, the celestial equator, and then at a the given point we have the ecliptic, the ascendant, the midheaven, and the uh, IC, um, where the ecliptic intercepts the the, the meridian. So mm-hmm. one. Okay, this is again the five-degree example of Toros that I I pulled up earlier. So how are we going to divide this? And this is the the problem. So let's begin. Oh, here's zero arrays. And let's go to whole sign. So with whole sign, we're doing a division uh, so structuring of the uh, of the houses according to signs, taking into account the ascending degree. So it's quite a straightforward division. We wouldn't need uh, such a complex representation. So let's consider the signs. Let's consider the divisions between the poles of the ecliptic, like the size were the signs were slices in an orange. You know, twelve uh, divided orange. In and here we have
0: all you need to do is establish what the degree of the zodiac is that's rising over the eastern horizon. And once you do that, then you can establish
1: the entire house system for whole sign houses. Exactly. So here it is. So the third house will be Cancer, the second would be Gemini, the first Taurus where the Ascendant is, the 12th would be Aries, the 11th Pisces, the 10th would be Aquarius. And we could see here (laughs) Still in the projection, a little bit of the ninth, um, because uh, if we recall, if you recall that the, the MC was at twenty degrees Capricorn, which would be the whole sign ninth. Uh, mm.
0: Right. So I liked your analogy. Of it's like it's like slices of an orange, basically uh, the whole sign approach, since it uses the signs as the houses. They're all exactly thirty degrees each.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay. So okay. uh, that's pretty straightforward. So that's whole sign.
1: Yeah, that's the whole sign. Then so here it is, what we're observing. And here we are. So we have five degrees of Taurus rising at the east. So the whole part of the house is five degrees up from the from the from the from the, from the horizon because you're considering the entire sign. If it was 29, the whole almost the entirety of the sign would be above the horizon. And here we can see the discrepancy between the 90 degrees uh, at zero Aquarius and then the the, the meridian degree at 20 Capricorn. So. Right.
0: So in this system, since it's anchored on the Ascendant and all of the houses are just measured relative to the Ascendant or relative to the rising sign, the midheaven or the meridian just floats around the top half of the chart and becomes a like a degree or a sensitive point rather than the starting point for the 10th house, because in whole sign houses, the 10th house is always just the 10th sign relative to the rising sign.
1: Exactly. Okay. Okay. So let's go. next one on our list equal houses, which sometimes in mathematical books is called the single longitude method. And this means that it's only considered one longitude, which is the ascendant, not two. Uh, and not the Midheaven again. But here it is different because let's establish these small points are the the, the signs, uh, the position of the signs. So what this will do is consider the ascendant and it's going to repeat the ascendant degree with an increment of 30 degrees until it reaches again the ascending degree. So here all cusps will be five at the five degree of the given sign. So five Taurus, five Gemini, five Cancer, etc. Right.
0: So if you, once you've established the exact degree of the Ascendant, so whole sign we just had to establish the sign that was rising, but with uh, equal houses, we establish the degree of the Ascendant and then we measure out in 30 degree increments from there to establish the other house cusps.
1: So it's going to be divided again through the North Pole of the ecliptic, but instead of dividing through the, the exact uh, divisions of the signs, you're going to divide it by the degree uh, of the ecliptic, which is in, in this case, in this example, five degrees. And you have the houses again. Yeah, here we are. Okay. And again, you have a little bit of the ninth house there, as okay. we're going to see in the diagram. All cusps are at 5 degrees. So in this case, the difference between the beginning of the 10th house and the meridian is a little larger than uh, it was in the whole sign because uh, of that 5-degree offset.
0: Right. So if the Ascendant is at 5 degrees of Taurus in equal houses, then the entire first house extends downwards until 5 Gemini, and then the second house is from 5 Gemini to 5 Cancer and the third house is from five Cancer to five Leo, and it goes all the way until you get to the 10th house. And the cusp of the 10th house in equal houses is always exactly 90 degrees from the ascendant degree upwards. And so the start of the 10th house is from five Aquarius until five Pisces. And so this creates another situation where the degree of the meridian or the degree of the MC, as some would call it, will be a point that floats around the top part of the chart, but does not necessarily act as the starting point for the 10th house. Exactly. And so equal houses is actually where the nonagesimal degree comes into play. And that, that was one of the reasons why I was mentioning that earlier, just because some proponents of equal houses will say that the nonagesimal, which is 90 degrees from the ascendant, and because that's the highest point of the ecliptic, right there at in this instance at five degrees of Aquarius, that so that might have some independent symbolic significance even if it is not um, the same as the meridian and it does not mark the exact north-south axis or the highest elevation of the planets per se. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So with equal houses, it's the last of the non-quadrant house systems um, mm-hmm. that we're going to see today. So. The next one, it's going to be what we call the porphyry and what is sometimes also known as the dual longitude method. And dual longitude because for the first time in this sequence, uh, the system will consider both the Ascendant and the Midheaven degree as points of house cusp. So it considers two longitudes, the Ascendant and the Midheaven. So what it does is the ecliptic, it's going to be divided in three. So the, the, the two arcs here that we see, so the arc that is below the horizon and the arc above the horizon, it's going to be divided in three equal parts. Here we are. And these three equal parts are the cusps of the houses. It is very straightforward. And then considering the poles of the ecliptic, here we have the houses. But in this case, the cusp of the house, it coincides with the midheaven so with the meridian with the degree of the ecliptic that is culminating in the meridian and here we have three uh, uh, houses below the horizon two and three be- above the horizon and the cusp of the 10th is coincidental with the midheaven and here it is the what is perhaps the most simple of the quadrant systems um
0: right so and so switching to the next one, so basically with this method, this is the first of the quadrant systems. Once you establish the degree of the Ascendant and the degree of the Meridian, you then um, break that up into four quadrants uh, as they're called. So it's not just the degree of the Ascendant and the degree of the Meridian, but also the degree opposite the Ascendant, which is the Descendant, and then the degree opposite the Meridian, which is the IC or different names for it. We don't really have any very good names for it, honestly. It's The place under the ground is like the Greek yeah. word. Um, the so angle you of then-
1: Earth. I like the one, angle of Earth.
0: Angle of Earth. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, so then you take those four quadrants in between those four points and you divide them into three, and that's what all of the different so-called quadrant house systems do. But this first one the most simple one Porphyry houses just divides those distances into even thirds yeah
1: exactly divides straightforwardly the ecliptic and it's done with so it's quite simple in that regard
0: okay so if in in your example if the ascendant is ascendant at 5 degrees of Taurus and the meridian midheaven is at 20 degrees of Capricorn then you calculate the number of degrees from five Taurus to 20 Capricorn and then you divide that into thirds and then you end up with the cusps of the in this instance the eleventh uh, house and twelfth
1: house. Yeah, exactly. and in this uh, system for the first time, we see that there is uh, the two uh, houses that has the cusp in the same sign. For example, the second house begins at zero something uh, within a few minutes of Gemini and the third house as well which is something that never occurs in the previous two systems
0: right so the this is the first time we've seen in the previous in whole sign and equal houses the houses are always exactly 30 degrees in length but in the quadrant systems we introduce houses of varying and uneven sizes and sometimes that can lead to um the same sign containing two houses or however you want to put that but it, that's the concept of um interceptions right
1: yeah yeah and for example in this case virgo and pisces do not don't have any cusp uh, there although here we have a situation of 0 degrees but um no neither pisces nor virgo have a house cusp there so these are called the so-called intercepted signs Although I'm not sure if this concept exists um in tradition. Okay. Well the the idea that the sign can be contained within the house, yes, certainly. But not the term intercepted if I never seen it.
0: Okay. And yeah, in terms of giving that some sort of special significance where sometimes in modern astrology, like an intercepted house or sign is mm-hmm. they try to come up with a a, reason, a rationale or like a yeah. meaning to yeah. that. Um Exactly. So- yeah. That was a really good point though. And just in terms of explaining and sometimes belaboring basics, your point earlier was that here, the second house begins at zero degrees of Gemini, and then the third house begins at 25 Gemini. So we have in quadrant houses, sometimes houses that begin with the same sign, which is unique compared to the other two approaches. Or as you were just saying, we have some some signs that are skipped completely, such as the fifth house cusp starting at 25 Leo and the sixth house cusp starting at zero degrees of Libra, which completely skips the sign of Virgo. So that would be the one of the main distinctions between the quadrant house systems such as Porphyry and Placidus and other approaches versus the equal and quadrant house systems where there's always one sign and one house.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay, cool. Okay. The next one is going to be Alcabitius, which is um, a development, if we can call it that, from from the the porphyry division, so from from the dual longitude. So in this case, now things get to become complicated. And the rationale that appears to be behind this is that porphyry does not account for heavenly movement. Um, So if we want to account for heavenly movement, what we're going to do is to consider the arc of motion, that parallel arc of motion that the, uh, the ascending degree is going to make throughout uh, the, its diurnal path of 24 hours. So here we are going to track uh, and, and plot a, parallel, a course parallel to the equator. And, um, which is exactly the trajectory of that five degrees of Taurus throughout the 24 hour period. And instead of dividing the ecliptic, we're going to divide this trajectory into, uh, 12 equal parts. So, for example, three parts uh, for the above, um, for the quadrant above and three parts for the quadrant below the horizon. And then, We have to project these points onto the ecliptic, and how are we going to do that? We're going to use the equator to mark this. So we're going to take the north pole, celestial pole, and the south, and we're going to do these meridian lines. These are called meridian lines that are going to be uh, parallel, let's say, to the to the to the to the meridian, and we're going to slice the orange. But considering the pole. Uh, the North Pole of the Equator and the South Pole of the Equator, which is where the axis of rotation is happening. So if you're considering the movement of the degree of certain degree throughout the 24-hour period, you're going to divide it through the axis to project it onto the ecliptic. And where these projections intercept the ecliptic, you're going to find the house cusps, which are going to be those um, uh, circles in the ecliptic, so okay. okay. So,
0: so the um, Alcabitius method incorporates the degree of the ascendant and the degree, the degree of the meridian, and then in order to determine the intermediate house cusps, it incorporates the um, celestial equator into the mix or into the equation.
1: Exactly. So uh, it accounts for the motion uh, of the degree of the ascendant in relation to, to the equator. And then it's going to have established these slices of houses which are related to the equator because we are tracking the motion and the motion is always done parallel to the equator through the equator's motion. Okay, And I think uh, it is the, 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 the ability of this system to, to combine um, the quadrants and the motion that perhaps was so attractive to 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 practitioners. It's a supposition. We don't have anyone stating this, but uh,
0: it's a supposition. Sure. Yeah. And And in terms of the like c- level of complexity, it's not quite as simple as it's a step up obviously from free, where you're just dividing uh, the quadrants into thirds, but it's also not super, super complex mathematically at this point. It's still somewhat doable, right? Exactly. Okay. exactly so how does that look on a on a chart
1: here it is it's not going to look terribly different from the previous one as you could see mm-hmm. again okay. we have the second house cusp and the third house cusp beginning in Gemini but they're off a few degrees from the the other position of porphyry
0: right or like the um so the degree of the Ascendant, the Descendant, the Midheaven or 10th house cusp and the IC are still the same, but then what's changed is the other intermediate cusps have shifted slightly. And so I can see, for example, um, I think the 5th house cusp used to be at 25 Leo in Porphyry, and that's shifted over to I think 23 Leo here, or the 6th house cusp was at 0 degrees of Libra in uh, porphyry, but now it's shifted to twenty nine degrees of Virgo here, so just a degree off, but it moved into a different sign, which for astrologers would be a major shift because it would change the rulers of the houses from a Venus ruled sign of Libra to a Mercury ruled sign of Virgo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And okay. yeah. So the interpretation would be completely different.
0: Yeah. So completely different interpretation. And so this is entirely based on just how the quadrants were divided and and incorporating a different astronomical reference point in order to measure them relative to and that therefore changing or subtly shifting the house cusps.
1: Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. Okay. Next on line, we have Campano, so the prime vertical method. And this name explains what it's doing. It's the prime vertical method because it's a very simple method with which we get the prime vertical, divide the prime vertical into 12 parts. Here we are just seeing the sixth half of this half. And then you simply use the poles to divide it, see? Simple division of the prime vertical so that is the greater circle that goes from east to zenith, to west, and then nadir, and east again. That one is divided into 12 equal parts accounting the meridian and the, the horizon, so the ascendant, and then you just slice it up into 12 and you have these houses uh, like this. This was a very ingenious uh, and it was always considered by authors who described it as very ingenious because it's dividing space, it's dividing your local space of observation into twelve. So um, it's very um, intuitive in terms of perception. What is a house? Um, so uh, that's probably it's it's attractive. It's appeal. Uh, it's it's this. It's not as easy to compute as um as Alcabitius, it's much more complex because now you have to have a different referential that is the prime vertical and you have to transform these coordinates of the prime vertical into the ecliptic and this uh, is a bit complicated. And as you can see here in the diagram, I placed the equator, which is the, the, the blue line, slightly uh, um, transparent because the equator is not considered at all in this division. Right. So there is no so... movement here of, of degrees. Being taken into account,
0: so in the in the previous method, in the Alcabitius method, the um, equator was the primary thing, or one of the primary things that was taken into account in terms of determining the house cusps. But in this, we're focused more in the Companus method on the prime vertical and on the directionality of, of north and south, and using that to calculate the house cusps.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a simple division of space into twelve parts.
0: Okay. Yeah. So how does that look? Let's see how that looks on a chart and how it divides the cusps differently. Well, okay. we're going so yeah. We, got, <laughs> yeah, a, we exactly. got a major major shift at this point in terms of the intermediate house cusps. Um so the ascendant, descendant, midheaven, and IC are still the same, but now there's been a major shift in terms of the intermediate houses such as the 2nd and 3rd and the the fourth and fifth, which suddenly things are becoming a lot less sort of evenly distributed and a lot less uh, proportional in some sense. So the second house cusp now is at 15 degrees of Gemini, and the third house cusp is at five Cancer, and the fifth house cusp is at seven Leo, and the sixth house cusp is at eight Virgo. So that's a pretty major shift from I think in the previous one in Alcibius, the fifth house cusp was at like twenty three Leo, so it shifted to se- it's jumped all the way to seven, and the uh, sixth house cusp was at twenty nine Virgo, and that's jumped all the way to eight Virgo at this point, so that's a pretty huge shift.
1: Yeah, and this is tip- this kind of configuration is typical of Campanos. You almost can identify a Campanos chart when you see this the the, the so the tenth and the ninth, as well as the third and the fourth are very small. And you usually have a huge twelve house, a huge uh, first house, uh, and uh, as well a seven and a six. That's usually the case. Um, that it, it's a big, big difference in terms of division,
0: yeah, okay. So now we start to see how some of these astronomical, these different astronomical reference points that can be taken into account in the computation of the houses, how sometimes. You can that can lead to just radically different results versus in others, sometimes the results are a little bit more subtle or a little bit more muted. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and we're always dividing something by 12 equal parts.
0: Right. <laughs> but it turns out there's many different ways to divide something into 12 yeah, parts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the problem is when we project these divisions into the ecliptic, this kind of of difference, uh, such a big difference can be observed in the zodiac. right. So let's take a look at the next one, which is Reggio Montanos, or so-called the rational method, or the equatorial method. And the equatorial method is what mathematicians call it because exactly what it's going to do is, Instead of dividing the prime vertical, it's going to divide the celestial equator into 12 equal parts. And and the rationale, at least in Reggio Montano's own words, is that it now is considering the motion of the the heavens centered on the equator, while Campanos is not. It's a a still system. So, what he does is he divides uh, the system, divides the, the, the equator into 12 equal parts, and then f- makes the projection still within the local space in the same manner as the Campanos does. So, instead of dividing the prime vertical, it divides the equator, and then it projects again to, to a north south uh, lines, which will yield uh, a different result. Hmm. So the houses are again very similar. The two systems are very similar in terms of of diagram, but uh, the results will be uh, much different. So,
0: because both Reg- Regio Montanus and Alcibius are focused on the celestial equator.
1: Ex- uh, no, on um, the they they always slice uh, um, the space according to the. Prime vertical—that's what they have in common. Okay. But uh, Campanus divides the prime vertical directly, while um, Regiomontanus uh, divides the equator. Okay. And again, uh, the difference is—it uh, it, it gives a, yields a similar result to to Campanus, but it's the, the the size of the houses. It's not as pronounced. It it distributes the size a little bit more evenly than before.
0: Okay, so it's not quite as um, sort of distorted or clustered with some of the houses as the previous system as the Campanus method, but um, there's still definitely much more of a discrepancy in this method, Regimontanus, compared to the first two quadrant systems we looked at, which were porphyry and alkebitius where the cusps were relatively close to each other. So here, the second house cusp is at nine degrees of Gemini and the third house cusp is at one Cancer and then the fifth house cusp is at 12 Leo and the sixth house cusp is at 17 degrees of Virgo.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not as pronounced as 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 before, but still more or less along the same lines. I mm-hmm. okay. And this method was very, very um, popular due to the, to, to the name, the rational method because it was um this combination of of the movement of the equator with the local space of the prime vertical was seen as genial uh, as a very good idea in terms of of how to divide celestial movement and how to divide celestial space
0: yeah i mean some of these names sound a little bit like um sometimes like politicians in the us will name you know bills that they want to get passed after like positive concepts like you know patriotism, like the Patriot Act, or something like that, in order to, um, <laughs> you know, raise support for it. I f- I feel like that might be a common thread here with some of these house division names. Is that if you want to promote a house division name, you just have to give a good a form of house division. You just have to give a good name to it, like the Rational Method or the yeah. Super Cool House Division System, or something <laughs> like
1: that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A good naming is everything, <laughs> right? Naming is everything. Okay, Branding. so we'll,
0: we'll have to think think about some different names for the different systems. Then it would be good good keywords to promote them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay,
0: and
1: finally, on our um, that's the last one we we're speaking today. It's Placidus. So the last of the traditional ones, Placidus. Although it has some resemblances to Alcabitius, it's not quite the same thing. Sometimes there's a mm, this is a good time perhaps to before I proceed to 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 talk about that idea that runs all over um the astrology nowadays, which is this idea of space of systems that divide space and systems that divide time. and Although we can understand why they are divided like this, and Alcabitius would be a time system because it accounts for the time that the that the degree of the ascendant turns around to the midheaven, etc., but um, and and Montanos and Campanus with space because they're dividing space, we have to also perceive that space and time here are sort of the same thing. They're all dividing space, as we're seeing, you know they're slicing space up into in different ways. so they're all special sp- spatial in that regard, and they all account time in one way or the other um, and equatorial coordinates. so if you want to measure something in the equator, days can be measured in degrees or in hours. So zero degrees of the equator is also zero hours. Uh, so um, so, time and space here, it's a bit um, different. Uh, it's, it's not that straightforward as it seems. Well, in Placidus, it's called the hour line method. And I think that's the name that explains what it is, because it's going to use the hour lines to divide um, the houses. So, how is this accomplished? The hours. Are measured by the equator because the equator is the one that is moving and constantly going uh, out time. So if we divide the equator into twenty-four par- equal parts, we'll have each of these parts will be an hour. As we can see here in the diagram, you have from the nineteenth hour to the twenty-fourth hour uh, being right a be- a before the, the the rising and then. After the rising, after the, the the horizon, we have the first hour, the second hour, up to the sixth, before hitting the meridian, which would be the beginning of the seventh hour of the day. So the hours are measured, are measured, of course, according to the movement of the sun, and these are solar hours or the the so-called unequal hours because these are measured by the amount of time the sun is uh, above the horizon or below the horizon. So the hours that you would obtain by using a sundial and not the hours that we obtain by using a watch which divides this all of this equally independently of the movement of uh, the heavens. Right.
0: That's one of the cool things about Placidus then that makes it unique is it's sort of very loosely kind of related to the um, the planetary days and planetary hours system mm-hmm. as well, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay.
1: It follows the same the same principle of division of time. So how do we represent this in, in, in space? So we have to now take account two other things that I didn't mention here, which is the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn or its projection in the heavens. So the Tropic of Cancer here, this line of Cancer is simply uh, if you place the zero degree of Cancer and and traced its motion, Parallel to the is the motion parallel to the equator, you would get this line. Because it it's the northernmost degree of the ecliptic. And the tropic of Capricorn represents the southernmost degree of the ecliptic, which is zero degrees of Capricorn. Um, so these are um, uh, our two extremes of the ecliptic. So where the sun is going to reach. The sun doesn't go higher than these two points. So when we divide this here, we're going to see that there's a difference. So um, in the Tropic of Cancer, the hours of the day are larger than the hours of the night. Because if you can this will be the summer in the northern hemisphere, so you have a a much more quantity of hours of day during that period. It's a maximum of daylight.
0: So if you're if you're measuring the hours of day. Um, that's going to shift based on the seasons because during some seasons, the d- hours of daylight are much longer and during some they're much shorter.
1: Exactly. And the opposite will occur in, for Capricorn. So the night hours are going to be larger than the day hours because we're on the peak of winter where the Sun doesn't rise so much uh, towards the horizon and the hours, the daylight hours are much, much less. And so to project the hours in space. we do these lines connecting the, the division, the equal division in the center with the extremes of the division in the northernmost and southernmost part of, of, of the cycle of time. So we have these dotted uh, orange lines which are called the hour lines. Um, so each one corresponds to one an equal hour, which has different times, different durations according to the position, uh, according to the, uh, in relationship to the equator. And so what this system does is it accounts every two hours to a house. So you divide. Uh, so every two hours corresponds to a, a house. And these segments will be the houses.
0: Okay. So this is taking into account just a completely different reference framework, which is the hours of sunlight during a day that's divided over the course of the day and then connecting that up as the cusps of the houses and each um, house is is basically two of these hours?
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, this is—it's simple once you understand it. It's quite simple. Mathematically, this is an absolute nightmare.
0: So this is the most complicated system so far.
1: Yeah, this is very complicated because none of the hour lines are um, greater circles, so they do not divide the sphere uh, into into parts. They are not complete uh, circles. These are just lines; they are not circles, and that uh, makes the computation quite complex. Uh, so that uh, there was a time where the mathematics had not developed was not developed enough to be able to compute this uh, easier in an easier way. Uh, it was only with Placidus later on that this mathematics was already uh, sophisticated enough to be to be computed with this, with, with precision. Um, and probably that accounts for the late appearance of the of the of the system in practice.
0: And once um, you know, once it can be computed, though it, it ended up eventually just printed in tables of houses, where astrologers, when they're going to calculate a chart, would just look it up in pre-calculated um, tables, basically, which would simplify the actual calculation when you're trying to do this in a chart. Um, and one of Holden, James Holden's statements that he makes is like an offhand comment about why he th- he thought Placidus became the common method in the 20th century is because it was one of the only ones where tables of houses stayed in circulation for because it had taken off during earlier generations. Um, yeah, so it's not it's not that each astrologer would have to do all of the complex mathematics underlying this in order to calculate it but once it was established and there were tables available, it could be applied yeah. somewhat more easily.
1: Yeah, you don't have to do it from scratch. You don't have to do it from zero ground, so, so it makes it easier. And the same phenomenon happened with Montanos. So there's also the the idea that Reggio Montanos gained the popularity that it gained because the tables were already available. Um, oh, of course, this can always be uh, argued that it's not just the tables, but it's also the logic behind it. Um, and uh, and not entering into a very complex discussion. Uh, the fact that Regimontanos had together with it also a system of primary directions, which would emulate the same movement of the houses to calculate the, the directions, and Placidas as well, these make make the make them complete packages, which were very very appealing, you know, to 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 a mathematical mind. You have the the whole the same system calculates two different things in the same manner. Um and this also has to do with the appeal. This was something I, I was discussing a few days ago with Martin Genson, who is more of an expert in primary direction calculation than I am. But uh this package, this combination of the two systems in the same method is going to to give a, a uniformity that is quite, quite appealing.
0: Yeah. that's Well, that's a really good point that um, many of the discussions, especially about the different forms of house division, but also the quadrant systems of house division were tied up in discussions about primary directions. And at least very early on, that discussion was often tied up in the length of life treatment, which was like one of the most important techniques for Traditional astrologers or older astrologers because it was like the main thing that everyone sought to be able to achieve. The most important you know, technique that you could possibly pull off as an astrologer is knowing the length of a person's life. And in Ptolemy, he said it was the most important technique that you should apply first because you shouldn't predict great things for somebody that's not going to live long enough to see them. Um, but it was been in Valens and Ptolemy and some of the other Hellenistic authors, it was always during the course of the length of life technique that they would first introduce and start talking about the different forms of house division and introduce um, the degree-based systems like you know, porphyry is introduced at this point in Valens in Book 3 or Ptolemy supposedly introduces equal houses and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah. And this is a point where it seems interesting, this connection, because although technically you do not need to to account directions with with the house system you use. There's no rule that says that has to be done so although some authors claim that they should be done the same way uh, because of this connection that you just mentioned. Um, It also hints that the development of a quadrant system has exactly to do with this calculation of the directions because to calculate the directions precisely, you need to account uh, the celestial movement according to the equator. And so the culmination will will hit in the meridian. And so once you're calculating the directions in this manner, so having to account the meridian and and the the movement uh, parallel to the celestial equator, it would be expectable that they would say, well, why aren't we doing the same thing with the houses? because we're dividing the space. So there is a connection, definitely a connection here behind the reasoning that leads uh, to the appearance of, of a quadrant house division. Um, it has to do with this uh, this method of directions which is one of those that perhaps together with perfections keeps, uh, uh, is resilient in the tradition. Uh, it it's, it transverses tradition throughout time, from 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 antiquity to the early modern period, and they're always applying at least directions and and progressions, and then later on uh, uh, the solar revolutions as well uh, as being the three main methods for prediction. But uh, directions and 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 perfections, I think, are the two of the oldest, uh, uh, which makes them quite uh, an important point. Uh, this regard. So so I think that the mathematical complexity and necessary required for directions is also connected to the mathematical complexities uh, of the house systems. Um, and You see that, for example, in astrolabes because um, some of the astrolabes, which we'll talk in a minute, are are going to be uh, made so, not all of them, these are more complex ones, have divisions so, that you can calculate the directions directly on the astrolabe. So, facilitating a lot. You're, 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 you're the time you need to calculate all these motions. Yeah.
0: yeah. And what I argued in my book and in, in episode 227 of the Astrology Podcast was um, I think that we had these three early texts. You had the Hermes text, which introduced, I think, the original. Proposal about the concept of the twelve houses, and it introduced a very basic set of significations for each of the twelve houses. Of like, seventh house equals the marriage partner, and tenth house indicates career. And that system, uh, they used whole sign houses, or it introduced the concept of whole sign houses. Then you had the Asclepius text, which came afterwards, and this introduced some additional significations of the houses. And it also introduced the concept of equal houses and dividing from the degree of the Ascendant. Um, But it's that system that introduced certain topics that became common, like associating the fifth house with children or the eighth house with death actually came from the Asclepius text. So a lot of the later astrologers merged and synthesized those two texts in the later traditions of house associations. But then sometime after those two, there was this other very important and influential compendium that was attributed to these mythical Egyptian figures named Nechepso and Pettaciris. And in this text, it seems to have introduced the original idea for the length of life technique because a lot of astrologers like Ptolemy and Valens and uh, Manetho will cite this text and they'll always start talking about Pettaciris or Nechepso when they start talking about the length of life treatment or they'll sometimes refer to them Sort of mysteriously as the ancient ones. Um, But it was this text I think that introduced the length of life treatment that used primary directions to direct planets towards each other or to progress them towards each other until a planet would hit the ray of a malefic, uh, like a hard aspect with the malefic, and that would indicate either a major negative event for health or potentially the end of the person's life. But this text seems to have described some form of quadrant house division or some some form of degree based division that was not whole sign houses. And I think that's the point at which this is the reason why a lot of the Hellenistic astrologers at this point start outlining these different forms of um, quadrant house division or as in the case of Ptolemy, maybe equal house division. It's because they're all emulating something that was described somewhat mysteriously or in a way that was unclear in this text but it was very much wrapped up in this technique for the length of life treatment. And that's part of what led to so much confusion and subsequent um, traditions because it it must not have been very definitive about exactly what approach you should use, but instead I think it used some sort of vague directional language about North and South and East and West that may have implied that you were supposed to use a degree-based system of house division, but it may not have come down very clearly on which one you should use.
1: Yeah, and, and that is typical of astrological texts. Uh, they hint uh, what might be a degree-based system or not, but then you would need the mathematical equivalent uh, where the calculation is explained to really understand what exactly are they doing. And that's our problem. We only we always have a partial view and this seems to be a constant in history. It is the mathematical books or the tables usually. That have the 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 form of calculation and and allow the identification of exactly what they are dividing and unfortunately not always not very rarely the astrological books have this kind of description which leads us with this with this kind of doubt is it saying this is it not it's, there's always a lingering doubt about what exactly do they mean right uh, and that's why you-, you have any uh, number of, of House system to to Ptolemy to being exactly what exactly Ptolemy was meant to say, but yeah,
0: that's what I was just thinking about was Ptolemy because even <laughs> you know Ptolemy is probably drawing on this earlier mysterious text from mm-hmm. Ptolemy. and the where it's not really clear, and Ptolemy outlines some sort of degree based form of house division mm-hmm. in his length of life chapter in uh, mm-hmm. Book Three of the Tetrabiblos. But then immediately within the first few centuries of Ptolemy. If you read Hephaistu of Thebes, who wrote in the fifth century, he says, "Well, it seems like Ptolemy. He says one person um interprets Ptolemy this way to outline basically equal houses. And that's what Ptolemy intended. But then he cites another author who says that no, Ptolemy intended. He really meant this quadrant system and it outlines a quadrant system of house division. Mm-hmm. So already in the first few centuries, there's a lot of controversy just based on trying to interpret what Ptolemy meant. and some astrologers, yeah sort of read between the lines of what they think he meant um, exactly. and and come up with new systems or new approaches
1: yeah yeah and the arabics are go- the arabs are going to continue this you know arguing the, the mathematical logic in dividing one thing or the other is it is it sound does it make sense so there's a lot of debate uh mathematically. And if even later on for example um um there is this debate uh, of early modern uh, authors i'm not sure exactly who, because I've seen this reference elsewhere, I haven't seen this directly, in which they're arguing that um, they're explaining astrology towards natural philosophy, so there must be cause and effect, etc. So their question is very very interesting and, and reveals a little bit about about the debates that are going on. And they say this, if planets um, change their significance? Depending on their um the, the incidence, the angle that they have from the horizon. So it's it's as a planet rises uh, that gets more powerful or it has a different incidence of its rays, so it's going to have a different meaning. If that's how the house system works, then we should divide the planetary motion and you should have systems like Acabetus or perhaps Placidos. But if you consider That the houses are areas of the heavens which have in themselves meaning. And then, as the planet transverses that area, acquires that specific topic or that specific meaning, then a division such as Campanos or Regimontanos makes more sense. And this is a very interesting uh, debate because it might not work at all like this, but. But it's interesting to see how they are trying to choose one or the other based on how they explain the very function of astrology. Um, and this is sometimes a debate that unfortunately doesn't survive in the texts uh, and perhaps would clarify, uh, why are they making certain choices in the vision and not others? Um, but it's interesting that there's a, there's a very substantial, um, Conversation going on in the astrological milieu of how do you do this better?
0: Right. And and all of the different things that are motivating it, which are sometimes wildly different. Like you're saying, sometimes there's, um, sometimes we are talking about, there, like with Ptolemy, there's textual reasons. So astrologers have textual arguments for the sources that they're drawing on. And that's why they prefer one system or another, or that's why they're introducing different systems based on almost like philological arguments about um, what they think the ancients did or whatever relative to their time period the ancient authors or the main authorities were. So it's almost like more of a historical argument. Or other times we have um, people who are actual astronomers that are trying to come up with conceptual or astronomical reasons for why you should use one system or another because they think different reference points. Are more important or should be taken into account or given more weight versus other reference points, like the prime vertical or the celestial equator or you know what have you as, as we've gone through in some of these systems. And then finally, there's a whole other category which is just um, once you've take, done the astronomy and astronomy aside, once you project that onto a chart, just where do the house cusps fall? And <clears throat> sometimes, just different astrologers deciding they like one system or another based on how it works in their chart, based on you know where a house cusp falls and what um, house that puts certain planets in in their chart versus this other system moves it to this different house, which they don't think works as much, and so they base it more on that more practical or more subjective or empirical or whatever you want to call it sort of approach to things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there, there is this. Um, Various layers of debate and various point of view in which the debate is taking place, uh, and uh, it's very interesting. Um, and I think at one point uh, a larger research project should be made uh, to to really uh, create uh, substantiate the, the information that we have nowadays, which is already a lot, but we we need more, and perhaps a, a research project will be good. For example, the number of charts there's no census of the, of the charts that carry one system or another. For example, um, it's not that I have seen a lot of lot of manuscripts. I have, I've never came across uh, an early modern chart with the Campano system and we know that it was used and there was debate surrounding it. I've never seen an example of it. Um, Marja Montano's, there's a lot. Alcabitius, tons. Um, but uh, the other systems are not so represented at this period. So it would be interesting to understand exactly how this is. What is the representativity in practice of these systems? Another thing that is curious is that sometimes uh, astrologers propose a system uh, or create one, like Albiruni, and then appear to use another one in their practices. Um, Albiruni is often quoted as uh, the the inventor, the self-proclaimed inventor of what we call the Campano system. But uh, according to some authors, when he draws his own chart, he does it with the, with the Alcabitius system, with the standard system of his time. So, so then we 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 are left with the question: Okay, so is that just a theory, uh, a mathematical exercise, or uh, has it to do with its practice? Uh, another thing that happens is that um, sometimes, you see other systems uh, in the tradition uh, that we, d- we didn't discuss here because they just appear in one or two authors which appear to be only discussed as a mathematical comparison. You know? You're explaining, for example, how you do a Campanos division and then you say, well, let's imagine that instead of this, we would divide something else or we would slice this in another way, and then a certainly a new house system appears that, from what we understand, it's just a mathematical exemplification of how you would do such a calculation. It's not intended for practical use. Um, and this is interesting as well. you know it's just thinking mathematics and doing an exercise. So let's make up a house system and see how we would solve it mathematically. Uh, but you're not going to use it because it's just coming out out of the top of your head. So we have to account for all these variances uh, uh, in our sources. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and some systems being maybe developed more as like a theoretical exercise rather than something that was used in practice. Or mm-hmm. yeah, d- documenting having a better documentation of all of the charts that survive in history. So that you could have like a, a graph or a distribution would be really useful. I, mm-hmm. I tried to do that in my book for the Hellenistic tradition, just in order mm-hmm. to make the point about sort of defending the the point against some criticisms. When I would say that whole sign houses was the predominant form of house division in the Hellenistic tradition, I wanted to be able to validate that by having like actual numbers and graphs. So I like went through and counted up every char- chart. That was used in Valens, or every chart that was in Neugebauer's Greek horoscopes, mm-hmm. and then tabulated them. But it would be nice to see something like that for the medieval tradition, or the Renaissance tradition, or, or what
1: have you. Yeah, and perhaps uh, we could see regional differences, which I, I'm, I'm certainly that they exist. Um... Um,
0: yeah, even during the Hellenistic tradition, you see a huge. Uptick in quadrant systems by the fifth century. By the time you get to Rhetorius and and some of those authors compared to earlier, Um, yeah. So that would be very interesting. There's also, you know, sometimes there's issues when it comes to different people approaching this and what um, sometimes having a blind spot or a bias or what have you. Like sometimes, for example, we talked about earlier different academics who have written on this and uh you know i've i've been somewhat critical of like jd north for example by not recognizing whole-sign houses as a as a concept or not seeming to be aware of it where i i wonder sometimes if some academics are because they're not pr- practitioners they might l- approach things in a certain way or with certain um blind spots that might be different versus how a practitioner what they might see when they're reading the texts and sometimes that can be a Drawback, or that can be a downside to not having that sort of practitioner's eye for things. But on the other hand, then with astrologers who sometimes approach this as an issue with the history of astrology, of like what were the different forms of house division or what was the oldest system of house division, sometimes because they're practitioners, they can see things um, in older texts that an academic might not. But then, also, sometimes astrologers bring their own sort of baggage or preferences or different things to it that might be a sort of bias towards different systems, and sometimes that can skew their interpretation of the texts in different ways, which is also can be a a sort of drawback sometimes as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's always a problem with academic research. You know, you always have some bias on your own perspective, and you need to. Be very, very attentive of that, so that you're re- reaccounting the facts and not uh, shifting them on, on on your own perspective. Yeah, that's 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 always very important, and we always have. To... That's why peer reviewing is so important, uh, because then someone w- looking at your work from the outside can say, "Well, but this is not clear here, or this is not the, this correlation is not well established," and that that's a good thing. That's something that we lack a lot in astrology. Um, what I've also observed, because uh, I was doing some research for this uh, for this conversation we're having, is that there are a lot of errors in the not only in the historical uh, description, but also sometimes in the mathematical description of how systems throughout uh, the internet. Um, um, if you look for systems, sometimes there are discrepancies and errors in the description, which clearly means that whoever did that was copying from somewhere else which was mistaken. So it's complicated. So we have to be very weary of uh, how house how systems are explained because sometimes there are very grave errors uh, in them uh, and a lot of confusion. So yeah, it, it,
0: confusion hmm. seems to be one of the biggest reoccurring. <laughs> I don't, I don't, whenever the concept of houses, I have this like theory that whenever the concept of houses was introduced, like there was some kind of astrological alignment or sign- signature that just indicated confusion and like murkiness because it seemed like one of the most murky issues in the history of astrology. And even like in the Hellenistic tradition, there was a murkiness about the fundamental terminology because sometimes when a Hellenistic or a Greek author will say ascendant, sometimes they mean the rising degree and sometimes they mean the entire rising sign. Or one of the issues with the Hellenistic texts is sometimes when they say midheaven or Mm meseronima in Greek, Mm -hmm. it can mean three different things. Sometimes it means the culminating sign, the 10th sign relative to the midheaven. Other times it can mean the nonagesimal degree or the 90 degree point relative to the midheaven or relative to the ascendant. Ascendant, And then other times it can mean the meridian, the degree of the meridian or degree of the MC. So that means. They're using the same word and it can mean three entirely different things just based yeah. on the context or based on the author and their time period and what they intended to say.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, for example, it's very nowadays perhaps not so common, but it's very common to, to call the mid heaven the zenith. We were discussing this earlier on mm-hmm. when it's not the zenith. You could say it's a projection of the zenith in the ecliptic through the meridian, but it's not the zenith point. Uh, so that's that becomes complicated uh, also because it's misleading the, the, the understanding of the house systems. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's complex. It's very complex. The language is very complex. And sometimes the way you state certain things can <laughs> make a huge mark in history <laughs> for the not understanding right. a certain concept or understanding it in a certain way which perhaps was not the one you intended in the first place. So right. yeah, yeah, it's a huge problem how you write things and state things the most correctly possible so that Yeah, that's I, don't, clear. <laughs> I don't know if,
0: if you're like me but reading ancient texts and seeing how so many debates have been sparked by, you know, different interpretations of like a single sentence or stuff uh, or something like that, it sometimes made me hyper aware of my own writing or statements and and trying to be as clear as I can, but Sometimes uh, you know, staying up at night, wondering if somebody in two or five hundred years is going <laughs> to misinterpret some statement that I made in my book or some yeah. offhand comment in a podcast, and it's going to generate like an entire new tradition of astrology for like the next thousand years. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I, Elena and I had had uh, were very careful when we were writing uh, the on the heavenly spheres, exactly because of that. Everything was state as clear as we could, f- we could could so it wouldn't have a second reading or a misreading of any sorts and nice. it's complex it's it's difficult <laughs> right it's quite difficult yeah
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well i have yeah if if ptolemy only knew like how many different generations traditions were generated from different interpretations of his text um, yeah. i wonder what he would think yeah exactly um, all right. Well, so this was pretty comprehensive. We were originally we were at like a three hours and eleven minutes. We were originally going to do a whole section on like the astrolabe. At this point, um, I don't know if if we should try to squeeze it in or if we should save
1: that for a, another time. Uh, what do you think? Well, if you want to do it, we can still do it. A uh, very short introduction to the astrolabe, and uh, if you see it's too much, you can always divide this in two parts. <laughs> yeah. All right.
0: Let's go ahead and do it then. Let's just do a quick introduction to the astrolabe and and as a as an as instrument. It relates, yeah, and that's right. as it
1: relates to how system. Because the astrolabe in itself would would require a lot, lot more explanation that we can do here. Okay, okay. so let's just. Uh, oh yes, we we forgot about um, Placidus. Oh. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, we didn't show the. We didn't show when it's yeah, projected onto a chart.
1: When it's projected, exactly here it is. It's similar, somehow to Montanos and Campanos in the sense that the upper houses so are a little shorter than the houses near the horizon, but still the the discrepancy is a little um, more less pronounced than in Campanos, uh, in terms of projection. Okay, the so the
0: second house cusp is at 5 gemini the third house cusp is at 28 gemini the fifth house cusp is at 14 leo and the sixth house cusp at 18 degrees of virgo
1: mm-hmm. yeah okay and, and perhaps now we can show the whole systems so the different cusps as i had as we go so here we have very quickly whole sign then the shift to equal house then Porphyry, which becomes a quadrant, then Alcabitius, Campanus, which is quite noticeable, Regiomontanus, and then Placidus. So here, this can you can see the shift, the animation between the these house systems.
0: Yeah, sometimes very subtle, and other times very major differences between them. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And these will be more pronounced if you have a higher latitude. So as you approach that point where the houses are no longer able to be calculated because of the uh, of the distortions of the ecliptic at those latitudes, then these differences will be much, much more pronounced.
0: Right. Yeah okay. in the in the quadrant systems.
1: Yeah, in the quadrant um, systems. Okay. Okay. So let's go to the astrolabe. So some astrolabe basics, and I'm going to do this quickly. And if at one time <laughs> we need, we can do another one with more, more comprehensive. Um, sure. Okay. So I here's the astrolabe. Um, the astrolabe has different parts, um, which I will explain. So it has... Um, first this basics which is called the matter, uh, so the mother. Uh, so this is the base, the physical base of, of the astrolabe. Um, then in this uh, mother, we're going to put the plague and the plaque is where the, the, the sky is represented for a given latitude. So for example, this is drawn for the latitude of Lisbon, uh, 39 degrees.
0: Okay, so the plate, an astrolabe. So it's a, it's like a usually a metal device, although it could be made out of other materials like wood. But it um, it is made for a specific geographical location and a specific like city and latitude, yeah, basically.
1: Exactly, and these plates you can have several. So most of the times, what they happen, they have uh, an astrolabe has a set of plates for different latitudes that probably were customized. You would, you would buy an asteroid and you ask for a plate from, I don't know, the latitude of 30 to the latitude of 34, for example, which were the areas where you operated or most of the charts you calculated were from those regions. Um, so that can be customized as, as you need.
0: Right, like a difference between like a, a one set for Baghdad versus Alexandria.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, in here we have this, the, the representation of the heaven. So, all of this is the representation of the heaven. So, here we have the horizon. Um, here, the meridian. So, we have the basic divisions. The celestial equator is represented by this circle. The outer circle is the Tropic of Capricorn, so the southernmost latitude of the ecliptic. And the Tropic of Cancer, the, southern, the northernmost latitude of the ecliptic east is here west and south because this is a north uh, uh, northern uh, hemisphere um astrolabe so this is what we were seeing uh in um in 3 almost in 3D with stellarium just pressed here in, into a plate then these Markers here are the hour lines that we saw uh, when we were talking about the plastic divisions. It's where you're going to count time with the astrolabe because the astrolabe serves not only for astronomical purposes, but for a lot of things, in set telling time and, for example, calculating the height of a, of a building, for example, through its shadow. There's a lot of applications for the, the astrolabe. All
0: right. I read a paper that said that's like crazy high number of things you could do with an astrolabe, and it was like 50 different things or like a hundred different applications that you could do with an astrolabe.
1: Yeah, it's a computation device, a uh, very complex one. And here what you have in this grid above the horizon is you have the uh, the zenith and then all of these are altitudes from 90 degrees in the zenith until you have zero degrees in the um in the horizon. So it it, it will measure the height of of a a celestial object. Then on top of this, oh yes, here it's what we're we're observing there, but projected on that same uh, scheme that we have been seeing with the houses. So this is what we have in the astrolabe. So, okay. All those heights from the horizon, the the tropics, the hour line. So, and you're observing this as you were seeing it from uh, uh, the celestial pole, and then you just flatten a globe into that plate. Okay. The ecliptic is then represented here. Um, but the ecliptic is a movable thing. So the ecliptic can be in a number of places regarding the horizon as the Earth moves. So the ecliptic is going represented by this other piece, the rete, which is movable. It can be moved to a screw in the, in the, in the center um, and represents, of course, uh, the zodiac and the ecliptic.
0: Okay, so there's another plate or layer that shows the 12 signs of the yeah. zodiac.
1: Exactly. And then you have these pointy things that can be represented in sometimes very beautifully in astrolabes, which are stars of known longitudes. So this this rete is made for a specific date, so taking into account the procession of the equinox. So it's for a given date. Uh, As as the time goes by, the astrolabe no longer works with the stars because the procession has moved them uh, further from these positions. Um so here we are. Now, how does this work? Very quickly, if oh yes, and then you have the pointer, which is the a ruler that you, you use to adjust your observations. So a very simple way of doing things, for, for example, calculating an ascendant is if in the daytime you have to measure the height of the height of the sun, which is actually done not with this ruler, but with the, the backside. So this would be what we see here. And we would do this with the backside of the of the other side of the of the asteroid. And this this pointer that we would point at the sun and measure its height through the shadow. Okay. So you
0: would you would pick up the you'd hold the device by like a string and then you would um Take the pointer on the back and point it towards the sun, and then that will tell you the like altitude of the sun
1: exactly. Yeah, okay, that's the idea here. But the principle is this one so you measure the height of the sun, Mm -hmm. and then what you're going to do is you know, for example, that today the sun is at four degrees of Leo because that is uh, you can have a, a calendar with that with the degree of the zodiac. Of the sun, or the approximate degree, like an, and an a, degree. like an
0: ephemeris. So, if you know from the ephemeris that the sun exactly is at, yeah. okay for yeah. Leo,
1: so and sun is very regular, so it's easy to do it. So, what you do is you move, you get the height that you measured, and you move the degree of the sun to that height, and there you have it. Where. The, um, the, sphere, uh, the the sphere the ruler of the zodiac intercepts the horizon the curved horizon and the meridian you have the ascendant and the midheaven
0: so right there all it, it just tells you right away what degree of the asc- the ascendant is located at which is what degree on the eastern horizon is rising of the zodiac is rising over the eastern horizon and then it also tells you the degree of the midheaven at
1: that moment Yeah, the degree that is culminating. And that's straightforward. It's from here that you calculate the houses then. If you're working at night, you would use a star. This is much more difficult in practice, but let's say Arcturus, which is that pointy one there. And let's say that you observe in the sky and you understood that Arcturus was culminating. So what you have to do is to move that pointer where Arcturus is positioned to the meridian line like there. And where you have the interception of the zodiac in the meridian and the horizon, you have the degrees that are um, ascending at that point.
0: Okay. So that's what the fixed star positions are for is that at night when you don't have the Sun, you can use the fixed stars to determine exactly the uh, rising degree and the midheaven or culminating Mm -hmm. degree.
1: Yeah, or time even. Uh, if you use it another way. so There's a lot of usefulness uh, with the astro. The only thing that the astrolabe doesn't do is to calculate planetary positions. Those you would need tables or direct observation. Okay, so this is just to very straightforwardly see how easy it is to calculate the Ascendant and and the Midheaven degrees in an astrolabe. It's very, very straightforward.
0: Right, so that's super important, and this is how, especially by the medieval period, astrologers would have calculated the ascendant in midheaven very easily, especially for yeah. the chart of the moment, um, yeah. like a horary chart, for example, or, or an electional
1: chart. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's easy as telling the time. You know, it's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's see how the houses are calculated. Now, once you have established the, the degree, how do you move the houses? So let's consider, for example, again, we have our astrolabe. Let's amplify it a lot and let's see Alcabitius. How would you do it? So Taking into account, so again, we have the horizon, the meridian, and the hour lines. And as we saw, um, Alcabitius has to do with the accompanying the time uh, of arising uh, of, uh, of the ascendant degree, so we're going to measure its time. So, we're going to place the rete on the five degrees of Taurus that we have been using as an example. So, once you put five degrees of Taurus for this latitude, you immediately calculate the angles. Right. That so is we've... straightforward.
0: So, we've calculated the ascendant and the mid heaven using the astrolabe. Yeah.
1: So, if okay. you need for example you, the question was if what degree will be culminating when at this latitude so you just put the the ascendant of the moment 5 degree taurus and immediately the astrolabe gives you the, the all the other positions okay. again very easy you have the angles and the quadrant angles very very easily
0: right so the question is once you've established the ascendant in the midheaven um can the astrolabe also help you calculate the intermediate house cusps
1: exactly and algebitius is very easy it Alcabitius is a constant so every manual on the Astrolab teaches you how to calculate the houses uh, by the method. so what you do is take the ascendant degree you make it so that the ascendant degree is 2 hours so each uh, the, uh, each of these lines is 1 hour so it is 2 hours apart and two hours apart from five degrees of Taurus, you will find the cusp of the second house.
0: Okay, so you can use the the hour lines that are commonly inscribed on the astrolabe in order to calculate the Alcabitius house cusps, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's just a a very trivial additional step to calculate those house cusps based on the hour lines.
1: Exactly. So, for the fourth, uh, for the second cusp, the third house cusp, so it's going to be two hours, so four hours apart, so extra two hours. So, you distance the the degree of the ascendant four hours from uh, the meridian because the straight line is easier to read and you get the cusp of the third house. Okay. Then, because you only have uh, night. Uh, the night portion of the astro with the hour lines, because if you projected hour lines on top of those you have there, it would be an absolute nightmare to read. Um, what you do is for the for the cusps, you will you for the other cusps, you'll have to use um, the descendant. So you place the descendant degree, uh, in, so it would be five Scorpio in one of the hour lines that is four hours distance from the meridian and you get this. So you're measuring this distance between five Scorpio to the 23rd of Leo. So so that will be the cusp of the fifth. And then of course, two hours distant, you get the cusp of the sixth and then the remaining ones are just the opposite degrees. Mm -hmm. So you do this in minutes.
0: Okay, so and then you've got the intermediate house cusps using Alcubicius. Yeah,
1: and that's it. Okay. As you nice. can see, very quickly to do.
0: Yeah, so this is important because there's a bit of a historical um, thing here where we're, we're not entirely sure, historians are not entirely sure when the astrolabe was invented um, and when it became common use because. We're not sure if Ptolemy refers to it in the 2nd century. Some historians think he did and some historians think he didn't. And there's a little bit of ambiguity until you get to the very late in the Hellenistic tradition. There's eventually like one Greek text, I think, that um, gives you instructions on how to uh, make an astrolabe um, in like the 5th or 6th or 7th century CE, so like super late in terms of the Roman Empire or early Byzantine Empire. And then it's not until the eighth, and ninth, and tenth centuries, during the early medieval tradition that all of a sudden, the astrolabe just explodes and is everywhere. and And astrologers are using them, and there's lots of manuals, and there's different like workshops that are set up by different people that make astrolabes. And from that point forward, from the eighth and ninth centuries forward, it just becomes a common, piece of equipment that all astronomers and astrologers have and use on a regular basis just as much as like you know today all astrologers have like a like a smartphone that they can pull out and quickly calculate the chart of the moment this is kind of the medieval equivalent is an astrologer could pull out an astrolabe and know instantly not just what the ascendant and midheaven is but also they could calculate the other intermediate house cusps really easily and um, over the past few months, I've been thinking about this and researching astrolabes more because I wonder if this isn't tied in with the shift that occurred in the medieval tradition towards the quadrant systems of house division where they already existed and there was already a precedent for them. But um, I wonder if the um, growth and, and emergence of the astrolabe as a common tool that was easily, more easily accessible by the eighth and ninth century and the ease with which you could use one to calculate the intermediate house cusps, I wonder if that didn't help to ease the adoption of some of, especially the more complex systems of quadrant house division, because calculating them just became something that was just super easy, basically.
1: Yes, um, it is. Technology changes the way you you. So that technology appears because there's a need, and then technology changes the practices because it exists. So there's a connection there. As we were talking about that earlier on. So certainly as the the calculations, there were needs for another type of calculation, the astrolabe appears and then suddenly the practices change because you have a way to calculate things that you didn't have before and and you have more complex mathematical models uh, to compute the houses because they're possible to calculate with the astrolabe. Yes, certainly there is a connection there. Uh, Even with directions appears to be to to have been a connection with it, uh, yeah.
0: Sure. So it's like there's there's ambiguity just because we don't know when exactly the astrolabe was introduced and and at what point it truly became ubiquitous. We we know that it was certainly by the eighth and ninth centuries, but we don't know at what point that really came into vogue. And prior to that, so there's some ambiguity there. But it's an interesting thing to think about, just the extent to which that may have been tied into this question that we've had for a long time about that shift um, that occurred in the medieval period with the different systems of house division.
1: Yeah, could be. Could be. There's a lot we don't know. We have a blank in records, unfortunately, that doesn't allow us to know for with certainty the answers to these questions. But certainly we have enough hints that the astrolabe or a proto-astrolabe existed. Uh, in antiquity or at least late antiquity, something is there because you see similar instruments, similar mechanisms, the 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 ability to project, to make this kind of projection, the astral already exists. So, you know, it's a one small technological step for the instrument to exist. And if it's done on wood or paper, then then it's not going to survive uh uh right. until today.
0: Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, but it's interesting how And I know one of the things you had said was that there were some astrolabes where for calculating Alcabitius, that was a a very simple step to calculate those cusps because it's just based on something that's already Mm -hmm. a default that's built into most astrolabes. But there were also some later astrolabes where they had a separate plate that was specifically for calculating intermediate house cusps using different systems, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I can show you that. I have one of those ready as well. Okay. So this we saw Archibius. Let me show you. Um, where is it? Yeah, Montanos. Let me share it again. And here you are. So with Montano's method, the plate has to have the houses calculated within, because you cannot do the calculation in a simple manner as you did with the hour lines. So, what happens is that they're going to produce um, an astrolabe that has these lines that are here on dotted uh, lines, which represents already the divisions of the space into those slices that we see either in the Campanos or in the Regimontanos system. So, when an astrolabe has these house lines, which is the name, we are either uh, observing a Regimontanos house system or a Campanos house system more commonly Regimontanos. And for example, uh, there, apparently there are examples of these plates with the regiomontanus system much earlier than the writings of regiomontanus himself, So, which okay. makes so that the system was around a little bit before he, he became the spokesperson about it. So here, it's... Even easier because if you have the houses, once you have established the angles by putting the ascendant, the the, the degree of the ascendant on the horizon, it's just a case of seeing where each of the lines of the houses will cut, intercept the zodiac, and then you have the values for all the houses. So it's very, very straightforward.
0: Brilliant. Okay, so somebody like like William Lilly, for example, probably would have used an astrolabe like this with the astro- with the Montanus house cusps, especially when he was seeing clients on a daily basis. And like a client would show up, and he he needed the chart for that moment. Um, it would just be a matter of like glancing at the astrolabe, and then he would have all of the not just the ascendant and midheaven, but also all the intermediate house cusps.
1: Yeah, immediately. And you see them these on papers, you know, uh, they, they sell them paper astrolabes uh, mm. that people can easily have. Uh, and for example, in, in, in my PhD, I was studying the, the teaching of astrology in the mathematical classes. So this is roughly the equivalent in terms of age to our high school at this point. So it's pre university uh, teaching. And they are teaching them not only to calculate uh, these positions using the astrolab, but also when they don't have an astrolab uh, present to make one themselves. So they simply draw the system directly on paper and do the computations on the scheme that they're drawing. So just, just transporting this idea onto paper very easily.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, and one that brings up one other thing mentioning of Lily and, and the ease of this is also, because the other thing that that also shifts from the the late Hellenistic tradition to the medieval tradition is there's like some traces of Horary astrology that go back to Dorotheus in the first century, just like a couple references in an otherwise largely electional context. Um, but then it starts picking up by the late Hellenistic tradition, where by the fifth century you start to see a few chart examples that survive uh, that are clearly horary charts. And then by the eighth um, and ninth centuries, we have the first full-blown textbooks on on horary that exist or that survive from uh, authors like Mashaallah or Salib bin And I wonder if the rise of the astrolabe and it becoming a ubiquitous item that all astrologers had and the ability to calculate the chart of the moment instantaneously with that much ease, if that also could have helped to ease the um, um, popularization of horary astrology that seems to have occurred by that time in the 8th and ninth centuries forward as well, just in terms of the ability to to very quickly and easily cast a chart for when somebody walks up to you and asks a question to the astrologer and then casting a chart for that moment and then attempting to predict the outcome.
1: Yeah. Well, it certainly would, uh, as the computer today, in the same way that the computer today um, allowed people who, without a- any uh, knowledge of mathematics and 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 uh, astronomy, to be able to 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 compute a, uh, with with, cert- uh, with with correction uh, a chart, uh, an etal chart or an orary or or whatever. Um, so yes, uh, it would facilitate. Um, uh, we we have still a lot to learn exactly how popular astrology work, you know, or consultation astrology worked at different levels because you always seem to have a popular side of astrology, uh, you know, very quick consultation in the market stuff, sort of thing like that. And then you have a more sophisticated mathematical astrology, which is being practiced in the courts by physicians. So people who have a much higher level of mathematical knowledge. Uh, so how are, the more popular uh, astrologers um, calculating charts. Do they have the mathematical knowledge? What level of mathematical knowledge do they have? Do they have these instruments and tables available or not? How does it work in different periods? So this is a question because if you're having someone that is constantly doing charts, it has to have a way to calculate them fast. Uh, Right. So Yeah.
0: Um, And that makes me think of uh... Well, a lot of things, I mean, one, sometimes the division between uh, at each any moment in history, there's gonna be there's always astrologers operating at all levels of society, and you do have astrologers that are like at the highest levels of society that are serving like kings or presidents or what have you. But then you also have like mid level astrologers and you also have like street level astrologers. And it makes me think of the difference between um we know that there's some of those astrologers' boards that survive, and some of them are very elaborate and what would have been very expensive pieces that look like chess boards that are made out of like ivory and uh, stone or wood and gold, and that you put the pieces on the board in order to recreate the chart once you've calculated it to show the client. But then you also have stories of astrologers that would draw the chart in sand, which would be a much more like simple and basic method of displaying the chart visually that would not be terribly expensive.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you have certain charts uh, those of the Nogbauer collection which are just graffiti in 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 walls. Right. So, <laughs> so yeah. you're calculating you know just there and Romans are experts on graffiti on walls with sort of sort of a lot of materials, some of them quite rude, uh, uh but you have charts, you know, so that's being done on the go in the middle of the street, in a wall. So how is that being calculated? it's it's a good question,
0: yeah. Well, and there's also, um, like I remember there's a text from like Theon of Alexandria, who was an astronomer who lived in the fifth century. He was the father of Hypatia. And there's a statement that he makes at one point about people um that he wrote a commentary on Ptolemy's handy tables because he had astrologers coming up to him that wanted, Information about how to use the handy tables of Ptolemy to calculate charts. Um, so it, it sometimes makes me think also of a division sometimes where, even though there were sometimes like high-level astronomers who were also astrologers like Ptolemy or Kepler, there was also you know different gradations in between in terms of sometimes maybe astrologers that were good at calculating or good at interpreting charts or or being diviners or what have you and and making predictions, but maybe needed help or were not as strong sometimes on the mathematical side of things.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: As you see sometimes in certain books or manuscripts where you ve- you ve- you see a very simplified form of astrology being practiced there, uh, which is sort of a very abbreviation very simple <laughs> abbreviation of astrological practice it was more generally uh more popular practice most likely so yeah we do have these discrepancies with different levels of knowledge which is quite interesting uh, as we see as we still see today uh, uh, as well yeah
0: exactly and that's one of the biggest reasons why I, I advocate for and I think it's been a good thing that astrologers have made inroads into and have entered into academia over the past two or three decades and that there's been that movement that you and your partner were a part of to for people who are primarily astrologers to go back to school and get their PhD and get their degrees um, in order to bring some of that knowledge into an academic context because that's really an area where practitioners can bring something that's useful and valuable as historians because sometimes some of the dynamics that occur in the astrological community today are very familiar to things that would have occurred a 1000 years ago or 2000 years ago or what have you and a practitioner can bring something that's useful and interesting uh, from that perspective.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and also a pra- uh, an empirical understanding of how things work and how things are done, which can uh, enlighten you know, sometimes questions that are, remain unanswered. Yeah, um, and yeah, certainly, certainly. And then at the same time, the fact that you're doing in an academic level also allows you to reach more precise conclusions because then you have peer review from people outside that are going to regulate and make you challenge challenge your own work and your your own explanations to see if they're really accurate or not you know so so that's a very it's a very good and interesting um uh, process when it works well and uh, i think it has the history of astrology has developed a lot in in the last decades and partially it has also to do with people with a greater knowledge of its practice coming into to the field and and producing works, a uh, significant amount of works. Yeah. Right. All right.
0: Um, well, I want to talk about that more to transition to mentioning the Astra project and your other things. But before we do that, is there anything else we should mention to wrap up our our long discussion on the astronomy underlying the different forms of house division?
1: Well, I think we covered I think we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think
0: the, the only thing I wanted to mention just to wrap it up is just one of the issues that's going to be a lingering issue is, as we can tell, each of these approaches and each of these systems is based on some sort of independent astronomical reference point or phenomenon that is actually a legitimate uh, astronomical concept or reference point and therefore may have different symbolic meanings when we're talking about yeah. what is the relevance for astrology and talking about looking at different astronomical stand- uh, astronomical phenomenon from a symbolic standpoint. Mm-hmm. So that's unfortunately one of the things that will continue to be frustrating in terms of trying to decide on one form of house division or another is each of them are based on different and independent and somewhat interesting astronomical reference mm-hmm. points that you know, could be useful in their own right in some way, and so that kind of yeah. complicates whether yeah. there's really truly like one singular system that should be used, or whether there might be some validity or usefulness to different systems in different ways or from mm-hmm. different
1: vantage points. Yeah, certainly. Let me just also add something, which is um, in the in the tradition. I think what they're trying to do with this different uh, validating these different referentials, as you were talking, is to to better describe. The universe, how things work. So the universal structure that they're they're interpreting uh, around them. So is it the prime vertical that's going to be more accurate? Is it the equator? Is it the ecliptic? What is it? Um, and that is a way of equating the, with reality, the universe that, that they're that they're experimenting. And I think that is the main motivator for for uh, for their choice or for their discussion and the debate. Um, and I wanted to point it out this because nowadays uh, currently uh, in our own time, we see a different debate. It's not just a debate of astronomy or of how, how reality is better explained through these reference, but also um, there is another type of symbolism that is starting to be imprinted into these uh, referentials which make the discussion even more complex. Uh, and makes us, for for example, uh, today existing arguments that a certain system would be m- more adequate to describe a psychological state while another an event or another a mundane, uh, which, um, not, not wanting to go into questioning the validity of, the, of those ideas. I wanted simply to point out that that's not what's in the mind of traditional authors when they are trying to debate these different divisions.
0: Yeah. I've heard some people sometimes propose that, for example, in trying to reconcile um, some people wanting to use whole sign houses versus um, quadrant houses like Placidus. And some people, I hear this commonly proposed by different people, they'll say, well, whole sign is more um, about concrete prediction and Placidus is more psychological. But I, I I sometimes wonder if that's not just a side effect of the fact that the whole sign tradition that they're learning tends to be more predictive because it's drawing on ancient traditional astrology versus the Placidus tradition that they're learning tends to be based on late 20th century modern psychological astrology. So it's, it may not be that that's inherently the property of each of those systems, but instead it may just be a byproduct of the context in which they have been practiced historically or are practiced today. Um, so that doesn't mean that that solution's not true, or maybe it does have some validity to it, but I think people have to be careful about making um, inferences like that that could be based on uh, misassumptions.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have to be careful. And I've seen things like, for example, Um, attributing a quality of the author to which the system is attributed like Porphyry or or Montanos, to the system itself, which is uh, in my opinion far-fetched. You you can't do that. That's not the point uh, at all of the system. And besides, as we saw for today, that attribution of authorship, it's very, very questionable. Uh, uh, so you you can't really uh, make that connection.
0: Or you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that some people argue that you should use Regiomontanus for horary, but they'll use something else for natal astrology. And I've seen some people do that, for example, saying that you should use whole sign for natal astrology, but you should definitely use Montanus for horary because that's what Lily used. But the problem with that, as you pointed out, is that different astrologers in different eras. That practiced horary used different systems, like Alcabitius, or even Mashaallah and Saul used whole sign houses for some of their horary charts. So there's not really any historical precedent that's going to like fully answer that question.
1: No, there isn't. I think that's a 20th century problem, and I think it is a problem derived from people having computers, which cal- can calculate these 30 more. <laughs> right. house systems and not knowing what to do with the, with them um so yeah uh and it's something that begins very early because i remember for example that idea of being present in um, rudyard's work rudyard somehow revived the campano system and and, and so people who followed rudyard's school would use the, the campano system because uh, I don't recall his reasoning but he had the reasoning relating to the position of the man in the universe which can be questioned you know it's okay it's an idea but you can you can see it from so many perspectives that I don't know if that's that's the way to go um but you do have that uh, and I, I think that is a 20th century phenomenon um and and, and especially the nowadays it's a, I think it's a 21st century phenomenon is this application of a different house system for a different purpose. Um, that is unprecedented, completely unprecedented.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a part of that where it's similar to some traditions of astrology where you have just different um, certain schools of astrology, like let's say a small school of astrology that adore, endorse a specific approach based on the approach that is taught by the teacher of that school. And then those that follow in that lineage tend to follow 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 that approach. So you pointed out Rudyar, and so some people have followed Rudyar in doing Campanus. or I mentioned um, the, in the 1950s like Margaret Hone and the Faculty of Astrological Studies endorsing equal houses. And so you have people today like Carol Taylor who follow in that lineage or some of the evolutionary astrologers for some reason. Um, uh Jeffrey Wolf Green in like the 1980s decided that porphyry houses was the system of house division to use so there's a whole lineage of like uh, evolutionary astrologers that all use porphyry houses today or you know nowadays in more recent times you have some of the people involved in the revival of Hellenistic astrology um that promote whole sign houses such as myself and I'm I'm sure some people who emulate that what um of
1: you have the Koch system for for the Hooper uh, method, uh, uh, which is the central system for their for their calculations. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So many examples of that kind of uh, schools of, of, of use. views.
0: What did yeah. Zoller use? Al-Kabit use. Okay. So so Zoller, who was one of the first revive practitioners, who revived the use of medieval astrology in the 1970s and 80s, he used. Alcabitius is his main system, probably because he could see that that was the main system used in the medieval period.
1: Yeah, I, see. I although I believe that at some point he also used Placidus before that. I, I'm not sure; I don't recall him, uh, at this point. But, but uh, I remember that he advocated Alcabitius when I was learning with him. Yeah, hmm, okay. As at least as the the system that they would use uh, at that period. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this was something cool. of a debate in tradition in uh, the early uh, 2000s. You know, uh, which system to use, and th- there were three basically: which was Regiomontanus, um, Acabitus, or Holzheim. That that was the debate, uh, right? Because all, all the Lily we
0: people would have been using Regiomontanus, exactly. Um, so that's like whoever that would be like like Deb Holding and um, John Frawley maybe and. Uh, Lee Leman or uh, Seward, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I think everyone that using Renaissance early modern astrology would be using uh, Montanos uh, because that were the forces. Um, right, because that's
0: uh, what William Lilly used in Christian astrology.
1: Yeah. People who were more focused on Zoller's uh, line of work um, and similar would go for Alcabitius. Uh, and then at that period, uh, the whole sign system uh, debate started to to pop in uh, uh, with the uh, uh papers and and stuff like that.
0: Right, because um, that was one yeah. of the funny things that happened about the revival of traditional astrology is it went backwards or it happened in reverse, where the right. Lily material was revived first in the 1980s. So like seventeenth seventeenth century astrology was the initial revival. But then the medievalist stuff started being revived next, especially with Zoller's work, which really gained steam starting in the late 80s -hmm. and early 90s. And then all of a sudden from 1993, 1994 onwards, you have the Project Hindsight stuff, which was the revival of Hellenistic astrology. And then all of a sudden, Rob Hand and Robert Schmidt started being very loud about the existence of whole sign houses and promoting that. Even though it was something that James Holden had been talking about since like 1984, but mm-hmm. um, it was in like AFA journals and the AFA was not as active as an organization. So it's some- somewhat obscure back then.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's interesting all those things and how this stuff happens. Just sometimes it's a matter of circumstance in the astrological community. Um, yeah. All right. Well, this is surprisingly <laughs> comprehensive. I knew we were going to pack a lot in, but I didn't realize how much. <laughs> Historical and other contexts we were going to infuse into this episode, but this was this was really amazing. So thank you for joining me for this today.
1: Well, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it yeah, has been um, a long long planning in this one.
0: <laughs> right, we've been working on planning this for at least like uh, two years almost now. So yeah. I think okay. I think it was worth the wait. And um, yeah, I'm glad we did this. So. I want to talk about um, first recommending your book on the heavenly spheres which is one of my top five astrology books that if you've seen in my videos on for new mm-hmm. astrologers it's what I recommend and you're thinking about putting out a re- revised version of that at some point right yes
1: yes uh, we, we had plans for that and I, I will continue with that uh, with that idea to update revise some 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 of the of the things and then add, add new material yeah so I hope to do that sometime soon. <laughs> okay. No deadline awesome. on that yet. Um yeah. and then
0: you also uh, practice astrology and you teach uh, through your website which is academyofastrology.eu, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Okay. So people can find out more information about your work there. You also have the Astra project uh, which is at theastraproject.org which like org. is more of a collaboration with academics and an an academic approach to astrology yeah. and the history of astrology. And you have an amazing YouTube channel where you've actually interviewed many academics who work on the history of astrology um, at youtube.com slash The Astra Project. So I definitely recommend people check that out. Um, And then uh, more recently, so so we're doing this episode first because we've been talking about it for a long time. It was a good warm-up, but we're actually planning on doing uh, another episode on the near future to talk about um, the work of your partner in her book, which was recently published just in the past few months, um, and she um, sadly, unexpectedly passed away just a few months ago, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's it's it Unfortunately, uh, very sadly, it became her posthumous uh, work. Um,
0: so I just got it in the mail the other day, but it's titled um, "An Astrologer at Work in Late Medieval France," and. Um, so your your partner, Helena Avalar, and um that you co-authored all your books about. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to do this episode to get the sort of house division thing out of the way and, and do a sort of warm up collaborating together on something like this. But um, next month we'll come together again to talk about that book and talk about Helena's life and mm-hmm. sort of celebrate that work and the work that that she did and that the two of you did together as astrologers. Uh, so I'm I'm really looking forward
1: to that. Yeah, yeah. It'll be great. <laughs> Excellent.
0: All right. Well, thanks a lot for doing this with me. Um, thanks mm, everyone thank for you. watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And I guess that's it. So we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, thanks to all the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour. Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopik, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, Kristen Otero, and Sanjay Srihari. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes or private subscriber only podcast episodes, go to patreon.com/slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors including the Mountain Astrologer magazine available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co, AstroGold Astrology software for the Mac operating system which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code astropodcast15 for a 15% discount, the Portland School of Astrology available at portlandastrology.org, Astrogold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io. And finally, the Solar Fire Astrology software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.